This is exactly right. Of the Law & Order franchises, SVU is considered especially watchable. We are the amateur detectives who kind of investigate the vicious felonies these episodes are based on. These are our stories. Dun-dun! That's Messed Up, an SVU podcast. I'm Lisa Traeger, and my voice sounds amazing. (laughs) Hi, and I'm Kara Clank, and my voice also sounds amazing. Um, Coming to you live from rainy Los Angeles. Uh, It's not live at all. It's in the time machine, as usual. But uh, yeah, you get it, guys. This podcast is about Law & Order SVU, recaps of the episodes, deep dives on the true crimes, and then interviews with fantastic guests. But at the top... We like to catch up. We like to chat. What's been going on? Speaking of the rain, you know what's wild here? It's all day, but it's not consistent. And so it's kind of like, uh uh-oh, I don't want to drive. And then it's like, okay, there's a pocket. And then it's like, fuck. (laughs) And then while you're on the road, it's like, oh my God, oh my God, monsoon. And then it's like, it's just, it's really an adventure throughout the day that I'm not really used to. That's what's like kind of a hard journey for me. Yeah, like yesterday when my kids were home from school and the, suddenly the sky got so dark and it just like opened up and it was like the hardest rain I'd seen ever. Like it was, I don't this it's, I don't but know. What talking is, about the weather is crazy. But I know, this, but what is nice here is it does keep people off the roads. The traffic is clear. The bars yeah. are empty. People are like, scared. People are scared of the rain here. It's very true. Like I remember being here once like, 12 years ago, like for a work trip and it was raining and I saw people pulling over and it was sprinkling. People were pulling over. They were like, we uh, we can't like. But my dad ha- taught me that. Like if you're scared, might as well pull over. There's nothing to prove. Sure. Might as well wait for it to be <laughs> over than like be in a situation where you're not confident on the road. If you of can't course, see, that makes sense. Pull I just over. grew up like, I grew up driving in like light rain all the time. So I was like, I don't know why you'd pull over in like in a, in a downpour. Yeah, you can pull over. I get that. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, uh, I don't want to go against any of Mr. Traeger's rules. <laughs> no, I no, don't want to get in trouble. You should. <laughs> well, so I'm trying to purge, get rid of stuff, organize, clean. I want to minimize my life. Yes. Which is a positive thing in, in on all accounts. Yeah. And my mother's on the other end of the phone being like, well, maybe you can send me some stuff. Maybe I'll like some of the stuff. <laughs> uh, I don't know. You know, I have some things hanging. I have some of the stuff. Like, I- I'm like, Mom, you're sick. You're sick. <laughs> I go, you're upset that Dad is hoarding in your kitchen and you're trying to, t- you're trying to your impede <laughs> my progress. And multiple times now in the phone conversation, she goes, well, I don't know. Memories. Like, sh- <laughs> She is trying to stop my progress. It is sick. I'm like, you want me to pa- package you old clothes? What the fuck are you talking about? So uh, it's it's really a sickness that spans <laughs> generations. Oh my God, that is so funny. I mean, I'm going home in a couple weeks and I'm going to go to my old house and clean out some. I got to go through some old shit at my parents' house and see if there's anything I want. And I'm hoping I cannot be too nostalgic and keep things and just be like cut it. But I do keep a lot of, I do keep sentimental shit. Like right next to me right now is like summer camp trunk that is 
filled with every letter, every playbell, every ticket stub, every birthday card I've ever received. Ever. I know, but in 40 years, they're going to love that. <laughs> Unless you yeah. have dementia. No. <laughs> <laughs> then Rosie will like it. <laughs> Rosie will like it. But the other thing too is like, we used to like go through our parents' things and be like, wow, a picture of my mom young. Wow. My daughter's going to see a picture of me from every moment of my life. It's all on the internet. You know? I know. You got to print it out and put it in the books because, I mean, there'll probably be some sort of war or, you know, TikTok will get shut down. I mean, yeah. oh, I, yeah, I, I was know. reading about that. They're going to try to shut TikTok down, but I, don't I know would love happen. it. Can we please shut it down? <laughs> Are you on that though a lot? No, I'm not. Do you I, scroll it? It'll save me money. No, I'm addicted yeah. to Instagram. I, I, I think it'll help me to get back uh, to. TikTok. I, I don't <laughs> Let's not talk about, but I did see one video about dementia where it was like a, a, a father doesn't remember, like when he's with his daughters, he doesn't know who they are, but he brags about them to, to them. them. Oh, yeah. I was crying. It's so tough. Oh my gosh. It's so tough. I was able to get my friend, my friend, my dear friend, I'm friends with these four girls from camp. They're all sisters and their uh, mom and dad are like, um, the best. I've known them forever. And the dad has uh, is going through dementia. And I was able to get them SNL tickets because he's like a huge lifelong SNL fan. And the mom was like so um, appreciative because she's like, I don't think another season it would have like worked out, you know? So I'm, it's just such a tough thing. Anyway. Well, yeah, because also as a culture, we're so focused on the physical, which is also important. But... The mental, honey. I don't, yeah. you know, you got to keep, you got to do the Sudokus. I know. I was going to say I'm doing Wordle. Does that count? <laughs> I don't think it's helping. No, because the Wordle is like a 92% success rate. You know what I mean? No. It's, it's like. Not. Sudoku, like I give up after two minutes though. So maybe no. my brain is like, I think I'm destined for um uh, some kind of. Do Sudoku, get through it. Get on a (laughs) flight and finish a Sudoku. Really? Okay, I'll try to download an app. We'll see. No, do it in the book. Someone had a funny joke. The book for the pencil? (laughs) Someone had a really funny joke about like the airline magazine where it's like, that means you've forgotten five things. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, completely. But That's so funny. But I used to dabble. I've looked at them. (laughs) <laughs> I um I like a I can't do the heart but there you have to be patient but you got to just do sudoku cuz if that's the thing you give up on that's the thing you got to focus on wow, cuz okay. that's the challenge you got to get over to get your brain going you can't just I, do the thing that's easy <laughs> that's- yeah I need to get my brain going in a major way. Yeah, you're basically like, oh, this thing, I give up on it. Is this thing that's easy for me going to help? What are you, ta- what are you talking about? <laughs> of course, about? I'm joking. Of course, I don't think Wordle's helping me. No, I mean, I but like, but like Sudoku, I get so frustrated. I'm just not good at it. Like, I don't, I don't think that's like, I don't, I don't know if my brain will work that way. But Yeah, I, I'm not a neurologist. But well, but I, I've thought about getting one of those like, luminology apps or whatever it's called that like is supposed to keep your brain sharp but that maybe feels like a scam fuck the apps get a pencil get a pencil (laughs) 
get a little book, get a word search. I mean, we this got- This is from a- my friend. This is from my friend who's hours a day scrolling on Instagram. I'm not doing well. I'm not doing well. <laughs> I, I'm talking I think your brain myself. seems pretty sharp. Your brain seems pretty sharp. I'm not doing uh, well. <laughs> not well, bitch. <laughs> not, not well at all. Um, wait, the best- the best thing that I think's ever happened on television, I think this is going to go down as the dumbest thing that's ever been said. The Miami Part 2 reunion. Okay, I know what you're going to say. Larsa Pippen, <laughs> she's an OnlyFans content creator. She has a couple businesses. I think she sells um electronic dog fences. Yeah, um, something with doggies, yeah. <laughs> um, Nicole is an anesthesiologist. And in the reunion, Larsa Pippen said, "What? I have a real job, not like you. Put people to sleep. And it's my favorite thing that's ever happened. <laughs> like, so stupid. It's so stupid. Like, what? You show people your feet and no shit, no shade. But this woman went to medical school. Well, and then Julia is like, um, I trust her the most. She put Martina under for surgeries, my wife, who I love. And then ever the whole brigade became silent. Like, there's nothing you can say after that, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so then, like, all the fricks and fracks were just like, like, it was dead silent. Like, there's just <laughs> nothing you can retort after, like... But also, they're all plastic surgeried out. It's like you all know what an anesthesiologist does. Like, and there's room for a better insult there. Be like, I can tell you put people to sleep for a living. You're boring me. You know what I mean? Like, there's room for a better insult. Like, don't say her job's not real. It's like extremely real. It's like kind of a life or death job. It's just, um, you know, she can never be. But also the thing of people, all of them talking about their marriages and how much they fuck and her just being like, Ah, this is nothing. I I used to have sex three to four times a night. And it's like, <sighs> that's clearly not true. Like, I don't, what are, uh, Larsa, you have deep psychological trauma and you have to <laughs> uncover it because this is a humiliating life you're leading. I, I yeah. don't understand. It's This is with like her extremely fake butt, which again, go get your BBLs. Nobody cares, but don't fucking deny it. Like you have a BBL. It's bad. It's really bad. Okay, so this is what my brother-in-law texted me this morning in the group I can't chat. wait. Well, it's a photo of iced tea on set, and I see a Peter Scanavino, and it says, an only in, in NYC scenario, dot, 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 with the press lined up outside the Manhattan DA's office awaiting grand jury action in the Trump case, a block away, a crew is filming an episode of Law & Order SVU. <laughs> yes, somebody tweeted that to me this morning also. Yeah, yeah. So funny. It's like right there. It's amazing. I don't know. Okay, so this is the thing that enraged me I saw on the internet. So Angela Trimber is someone I follow on Instagram. Yeah. She's in my first stories normally. She does cool dance classes. And she had breast cancer a few years ago and she does these breast cancer groups and she's really just open about her journey of reconstructive surgeries. So she's she's had trouble in her reconstructive eras and she's had like four or five surgeries and she was asking advice, whatever. So I was just reading a bunch of comments from people and different people giving advice and their own experiences. And then I read one that was so horrible that I was like, I bet this happens all the fucking time. So a woman says that she had her appointment with her surgeon. 
She wanted a small B, like that's what she wanted. While she was put under, the doctor just decided that she was wrong and gave her C's. Whoa. Just gave her a different size than she decided. And when she woke up, he goes, yeah, I just thought that like you actually wanted this and not what you said. So I gave you bigger tits than what you decided on. Ugh. Is that not against a law? Like I just... I just don't understand. And that can't be the first time. I just assume like people go in all the time being like, I want small. And then people be like, actually, I gave you D's. Yeah, no. And they're also like, they just came out with like information, more statistics about maternal birth, like rate, uh, maternal mortality rate in this country of like women dying. It's like doctors just don't listen to women. That's like the bottom line. (laughs) Like they're just not listening to women. And it's worse with women of color. Should men just not be allowed to be doctors that are specific for women? Like, is that? I know. Like, should men just, maybe men shouldn't be allowed to be obstetrician, gynecologist, breast. I mean, I'll tell you, when I had Rosie and you know I had a complication where I was like, I lost a lot of blood, I had all women in the room. There was not a man in the room except for Jared and I felt great. I was like, this feels right. (laughs) Like, I tweeted about it. And I tweeted about it and was like, I felt really awesome to have this team of women taking care of me. And of course- the, the responses were like, yeah, the women who learned from men, like all these people, like they couldn't handle that I felt good in a room full of like female doctors and nurses. I mean, it was so crazy. Yeah. But yeah, that's a utopia. The all-female docs. Thinking Although, you know. you know better than the person that is communicating to you what is, I just am like, that is wild. Did this she... person is deciding you want a certain tip yeah. for your life and you being like, no, while they're under. That's abuse. Like, that is, su- like, I don't understand. I just, I don't understand. She should sue. She should sue. That's fucked. That's fucked. I'd love to get a reduction now that we're talking about this. Anyway. I was just um, having a drink with someone who had a reduction yesterday. Oh, really? Yeah. And they're like, honestly, I wish I went smaller. I would love to have smaller boobs. The grass is always greener. People are out there paying money to have boobs my size and I'd rather have them much smaller. Anyway, off of the horrific treatment of women by the healthcare industry, should we just begin our episode today? You know, I'll say I have a great time at Cedars. I had an, my allergist is incredible. She went into my dermatologist. She solved everything. Cause she was legit just like, listen, girl, the first photos of your skin you showed me are not, what you're show, what you're having now. She goes, you've had simultaneous issues at once. She goes, yeah. What you first showed me, because the the first thigh stuff hurt. Remember, like, yeah, that could have definitely been shingles. That is different than my other things. Like, she just broke it down in a way, and then like went into all my old stuff. Like, she just took yeah. care in time in a way that like. I really appreciate it. but And I had both my babies there and I loved it. But then I've also met women that said that they've had horrible experiences there. So I think it's doctor to doctor. You know what yeah. I mean? But I'm really glad you're getting answers from a uh, because, woman. Because everyone <laughs> just kept being like, this is definitely not. But I just like that she was like, honey, what, what's on your legs now is not what the photos you sent me four months ago. She's like, yeah. she's like, these are different things. And she goes, also, this is not eczema. She's like, she's like, I don't understand. She's like, I will, I, let me, let me look at all the documents. And then she called me on a Saturday. I heard what? her kids in the background. Wow. Um, Dedication. 
Yeah, and I'm I'm seeing this new doctor and I'm in this new program there. I don't know. They're just really helping me. Yay. I'm happy. Because I drive far. I drive like 45 minutes. Yeah. And it is annoying, but they really work together. I know. That's why, I, like, my OBGYN's over there and I still drive over there because I like her. And I only have to go once a year right now unless something, you know, happens. I know. But- I got a schedule now because I got to get my IUD out. Oh. I know you all wanted to know that. This is turned into I didn't even know it. you had one. You know, I learned something new about you every day. Well, it's it's coming on 10 years. Oh, there we go. This is what I say. Everyone talks about how time flies, but not when you think about it in IUD terms. Oh. Because, I, you know, time is so fast. Oh, God. But this has been, it, it's still here. Wow. Interesting. Time crawls when you think about the IUD. <laughs> yes. For sure. Time I still have it. Is slow with that IUD. All right. On that note, I think we should start. Casey gave us the flag a while ago. I know this is a super long episode, so let's get going. Okay, okay. This episode is Unholiest Alliance. It's season 17, episode 18. If for some reason this is where you're like starting the podcast, this is part of a this is part of a two-part episode. So if you skipped last week or something, you gotta go back because this is a continuation of Manhattan Transfer, which was episode 17. A little recap from last week. Something's going on. Everybody's ending up dead in this investigation with the church and uh, this sex trafficking ring. There's dirty cops. uh, And now suddenly it looks like Tucker is involved. Is he guilty? Is he not? But we ended the last episode with fucking Benson packing up her office. And I mean, you you know the truth. She doesn't actually get kicked out of SVU forever, but she's kicked out of SVU for the moment. So we cold open on this episode. Well, you got to tell them why she's getting in trouble. Oh, yes. Sorry. Because she's because <laughs> she's diddling Tucker. Oh, I hate when they say that on the show. You telling me this guy gets off diddling little girls? Uh, she's in a relationship with Tucker. She didn't tell anyone. She didn't tell Barba. Barba's pissed. And, you know, one PP's even more pissed. And so she is being asked to step down until they can clear Tucker or figure out the investigation. So... Now we're at the squad opening up this episode. Daddy Dodds, a.k.a. Eyebrows Dodds, is like, I know you all miss your mom, but keep doing your jobs. And Baby Dodds, and then he leaves. And Baby Dodds is like, just FYI, you guys, I didn't know about this and I need your help. And he's like, so Liv got recused because of the charges against Tucker. And Finn's like, what does that have to do with Liv? And Dodds like, who can know? (laughs) And, you know, I can't believe they're all professional detectives and no one can connect the dots about why this, like, like later, in a later episodes, Rollins can tell just by a look how, what's going on in Liv's relationship. But here, like, nobody can tell that she's actually banging the IAB guy. So Barbara is, oh my God, I just did it. Barbara is pressuring them to follow up on charges against Tucker. In the next scene, uh, Tucker's being interrogated in what looks like a spaceship. It's like very dark. He's under light. And then there's three people high up on like a like a dais almost, like asking him questions. Uh, Tucker and Jefferson, uh, who are the dirty vice cops, are alleging that they came to Tucker about the sex trafficking ring a year ago and that Tucker tried to blackmail them both to get in on the action. Like, let me in on this girl ring. I've got to make some money and have some 14-year-olds at my disposal. And he asks um, if they've talked to Sister Nina, who might have some knowledge of 
Father Eugene's involvement, which, if you'll remember, is Tucker's cousin, who is a priest and a school psychologist. So now we cut to Sister Nina at the halfway house, frantically throwing shit in a bag, but stopping to grab a cross off the wall. She believes in Jesus above anything else. She does love the Lord. And so, um, and then the next thing we see is like Sister Nina looking stressed, picking up this young girl in her car. Now we see Benson talking to Barba and she's giving him a guilt trip about her transfer. But he's like, I'm not part of this 1PP stuff. And Benson is like, well, you ratted me out. And he's like, I had to, we're investigating Tucker. Like we all know Barba's Mr. Buttoned up. He's not gonna let anybody get away with anything. Yeah, until Um, he murders a baby. (laughs) Well, that's coming up later. Yeah. Well, you know, he says Liv taught him that not everything's black and white. So maybe nowadays he wouldn't be so quick to... Who In current seasons, he's defending full like mass murderers. So who knows what's going on with Barba. But um, she defends Tucker and is like, this investigation will clear him. And Barbara's like, okay, great. Well, then until then, stay out of it. And she's like, you guys are chasing a Trojan horse while the other girls are in danger. And he's like, I can't talk to you about this. And he walks away. And then Liv gets a call on herself from Sister Nina, who's like, I'm being followed. Did you tell them that I'm not helping out anymore? Tell them I'm out. Like, what's going on? And we, we're cutting back and forth between her and Liv. And she's like on a road which looks like it's kind of upstate. It's out of the city, woods and foliage everywhere. And um, there's this van right behind her driving very close. And she hangs up on, on Liv. And then the next thing we see is this van force the car off the road into a crash. And the last thing we see is a man approaching the car from behind. We don't see who it is. And Nina and the girl in the car are in the car like the airbags have deployed. They look dazed and, uh-oh, this guy's not doing anything good. Credits. So now, top of act one, Liv walks up to Tucker on the sidewalk and it looks like he's putting out a cigarette. I was like, I don't know, I'm weird. Maybe he's a stress smoker, but I've never seen him smoke before. He throws something on the ground and steps on it. And he says, group one's been grilling him since 8 a.m. They think he's in on this. I guess group one is like the head of the one PP, like the people that go after even the IAB people. So someone is after Sister Nina, she says, and you might be next. And he's like, and she says, I can't reach Sister Nina, but Dodds is tracking her phone. So now we cut to Rollins interviewing Father Eugene and um, just like right out in the squad room, no private room, just right at her desk. (laughs) Like he feels like uh, this is a huge possible conspiracy. Let's get a room. And he says he was concerned that these two vice cops were exploiting these girls. So he suggested to the Monsignor that they talk to his cousin in IAB, Tucker. And then we cut to the Monsignor talking to Carisi and he's like, I wrote a letter a year ago, March 14th, and I wrote it by hand and I, but I kept a photocopy because that makes sense. Finn is talking to Russo, one of the dirty cops, and he says, Tucker called him and says he wanted to meet on March 16th. Tucker said it was off the record and that he knows about them and the girls. And he says, cut me in or else. And he says, there's no way to verify it, but he does say he told his captain about it. And the captain, as we remember, is the guy from Beef with the bad sideburns. So now the gang all gets together and they're like, either Tucker's dirty or he's being set up good. Now, what about Sister Nina? Her burner is unreachable, but Taru found out that the last call came from Saxon Woods and he got an emergency exception to put a trigger fish on her phone, which I looked up and it's some kind of, you know, like a surveillance device you can like put on or to tap people's phones. So at the scene of the accident, 
They can they, now they found the car. They can see that Nina was run off the road, and there are drag marks. But so both women would have been taken because no one's with the car anymore. They figure out that there's a second victim because they pull out two suitcases, and one has like clearly teen non-nun clothing in it. So they're like, okay, there was another person with her. The minivan is registered to a church in Yonkers and is usually driven by Father Joseph Leahy. Um, it's like another priest in the mix. And now we cut to talking to this priest, and it is my friend Drew Johnston, an actor, a, a guy who used to direct my mod team at UCB back in the day. So congrats to Drew. He says he gave the van to Nina because she was in trouble, along with the keys to his family's lake house in Vermont. Ooh, okay. I'll be friends with this priest. I want to go to a lake house in Vermont. This guy isn't a Catholic priest. He's maybe Episcopalian or something. And he's like, I used to be a Catholic priest. Then we get to the bottom of it. This is why he's given out keys to his car and his houses. He and Sister Nina were in love. And uh, she turned him down when he wanted to marry her and said that girls were being abused and she had work to do. So she's, you know, her work comes above anything else. And she was trying to get the girls out of town. Margaret and Danielle are at home, which only leaves Natalia of the victims that we recovered from the beginning of the episode from the sting. And um, the, the place where Natalia is staying said she left early in the morning and now she's at the hospital with an OD situation. So at the hospital, Natalia has survived. She's really scared and was like, you should have just let me die. And the man who did this said he would do the same thing to her as he did to Sister Nina. He was black, dressed like a priest, and had an African accent. So it sounds like it's Father Akintola, who they talked to earlier and who was like, oh, poor Kara, like, and acted like he really cared about the girls. So now she starts telling them how he forced them into his van, drove to a dead end, and then walked them into the woods where he raped Sister Nina. And then when he was done, he shot her anyway, she says. And he says, tell the other girls that's what'll happen if they talk. I don't, I mean, if these guys are on such a slash and burn mission, I don't know really why they like kind of let this girl get away. But what he did was he drove her back to the Bronx and handed her a loaded needle and said, the Lord is my shepherd. And then she woke up in the hospital. So I think they were hoping that she would take a hot shot, much like Kara and have the same fate, but she actually survived her OD. So... That's a small silver lining in this nightmare of crimes. Also, like, we'll get to it in the crime, but these priests, too, like, they just scare a lot of these kids so hard that they'll never tell for decades, even other adults. Like, if you show someone a dead body and say, I'll do this to you and everyone you love, you know, kind of, don't even have to kill everybody. You just scare the shit out of them. Yeah, and then the layer on top of that is like you're betraying God somehow if you tell on a priest, you know? I feel like there's like the physical danger that they threaten and then there's also like, well, you know, this is your role as a uh, child of God, you know? You know know how they, like the case in Michigan where the parents were like encouraging the son to be a weird mass shooter and they have been charged as accessories to the crime? I think if you raise your children in the Catholic church, that should happen as well. Oh, wow. I think you should be charged. If your kids are altar people and they get molested in the church and hurt, you should go to jail. Because you put them in that position? You put them You put them in there. Especially the ones that speak up on it and then their parents don't believe them because they think priests are God, like ordained yeah. by God. And it's yeah. like when you teach your children that someone is above you because they wear a robe, like you, you need help. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway, now, um, (laughs) and we're moving on. (laughs) Now we are tracking down Natalia's story. They're in the woods. It's nighttime. This is like all later, but like this happened. This is how I felt during the Brett Kavanaugh stuff where like 
parents and all these people, you don't realize like everything you say, your kids take in. Mm-hmm. And so even if something did happen to them, when you talk about victims, how they're like whores and they're not, they're lying and they just want money, but you've been molested by a priest and your parents are talking shit about victims, you're not going to come forward. Yeah. So it's like all these people's opinions of these just guys. I just, I, I, Catholicism is on a level that's so funny. The Judaism too. Like, I mean, with the robes and the can and the yeah, yeah. and the bishop and you do the, it's like, it's so, the little box with confessions. It's just like so many little things. <laughs> they do have a lot of little things. They got a, a lot of little, little rooms and little boxes and do candles. Do you know when, we, when it started? Catholicism? Yeah, one was Christianity not enough and they're like, we need a little room. Like, when was yeah. that? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I really am not good at religious history at all. As you know, I really didn't even know Jesus's whole deal until I was 17 years old. Um, But yeah. Well, Jesus, I was just saying, he had great things to say and the rest of the Bible is just gossip. It's just a bunch (laughs) of men gossiping. It got twisted. Jesus seems cool. I feel like we would be chilling with Jesus. Yes. Like, I don't think, yeah, I do. I don't think I'd be like, ugh, to Jesus. (laughs) For sure. Um, okay, so Whatever. we're back here. We're back in the now. We're in the woods. It's nighttime. We got the dogs out. They find sister. Because it Nina. is more torturous too. This girl's just like everyone thinks she's an you know a drug addict. Gonna throw yeah, like it's think- even more torture. Yeah, well, and also the way that these priests have, like, labeled them as, like, girls that run with gangs, girls that are addicted to drugs, it's like, no one will believe you. Like, you are not a valid person. Like, you know? So they're the perfect people to funnel into these horrible, uh, you know, crime rings. But anyway, they do find Sister Nina. She is dead. There's blood on her face. I mean, yeah, she's lying dead in the woods. There's really no uh, no need to call a bus. And Carisi does the sign of the cross kneeling next to her. And he's so, like, affected by this that baby Dodds is like, I'll call it in. Like, I won't make you pick up your radio right now. You seem upset. Um, and so now, top of act But then I bet be- the end of the episode is going to be Carisi in a little box anyways. Like, <laughs> None of, the, none of these guys stop. Yep. Nothing really changes anyone's mind. Um, Baby Dodds and Benson are now walking on the street and he's filling her in on everything. The Emmy confirmed Natalia's story about Sister Nina. She was raped and shot in the head, point blank. And Natalia did ID Father Akintola. So that's who it is. So he says that no one at St. Fabiola's is answering and Benson goes, send someone to wait outside of their offices. Like, we're getting to these people. So at the school, an old-ass nun comes out and tells Carisi, I'm sorry, the Monsignor isn't here. And Carisi's like been waiting for hours and he's like, Sister, I've been waiting here forever. Like, you told me that he was here. And she's like, he's in seclusion praying for Nina. Like, they're just stonewalling at this point. And then at the halfway house, Rollins is hearing from Sister Ida that the Monsignor told her that Father Acantola had a family emergency in Cameroon. So he's out of the country. Cameroon! Cameroon, come through! (laughs) And Rollins' hair does look really good here. For some reason, I'm really into her hair in this one scene. Um, And then back to Carisi and the old nun is not telling him shit. And you can see his Catholic loyalty is like being tested in this episode. And the Monsignor basically told the nuns and all of them to shut the fuck up for the good of the church and that God's plan will be unveiled with time. I mean, these are grown women that don't even understand that they're part of a full fucking cover-up. Sister Ida tells Rollins that Bishop Catalano, a distant relation to Jordan Catalano, I'm sure, um, might know more. 
And at Bishop Catalano's house, Finn's outside waiting with no luck, but then a car pulls up. The window rolls down like mobster style. And cousin Eugene is in the car with the bishop and they're stonewalling Finn. And Finn's like, we need to talk to you. And they're just like, not now. We're busy praying for dead girls and et cetera. So, and dead nuns. And Finn is like, truly looks like he's trying to sell knives door to door. He's like, can I please have five minutes of your time? And they're like, not today, sir. At the precinct, Sister Nina's murder is on the cover of all the papers. No one from the church is returning any calls. No one can reach Father Akintola. ICE has no record of Akintola leaving the country and no record of him coming, him coming in, so he could be anywhere. And they're like, what about warrants for the financials? Like, I thought we were going to check all of Father Eugene and the Monsignor's financials. And Barbara's like, I got three judges all not getting back to me because no one wants to take on the church. And... Uh, I forget who says it, but somebody goes, what about Judge Wheeler? We got photos of him groping a 16-year-old girl on his lap. So this is the creepy judge from the beginning of the last episode who, uh, you know, started beefing with Carisi because he wouldn't let the 16-year-old he was molesting go get a glass of water. And now we're talking to the judge and he goes, uh, to, to Judge Wheeler, and he goes, this is blackmail. And it's like, yeah, bitch, what don't you understand about that? And so then they give him the names of um, the priests, Eugene and Akintola, as well as the Monsignor and the Bishop. And he balks at like these warrants. He's like, I'm not gonna sign these for you. And they're like, well, we don't want your pedo signature on these warrants anyway. You gotta find a friend to do it. Or we're gonna let everybody know that you were involved in this crazy sex party. So... There are no records for Akintola and he might not even be a priest. There's no record of him at the archdiocese and the Monsignor has nothing going on financially. So this is like those guys that hang out at cop bars from other episodes. <laughs> yes. So this is like a priest hunter. Yes, this guy is, well, a what, yeah, yeah, he's a priest groupie. So the Monsignor has nothing going on financially and Carisi's like, maybe he's a good guy. It's like Carisi's <laughs> looking, truly looking for any silver lining he can find that makes his whole identity as a Catholic not bad. And um, Father Eugene, they find out, is paying $600 a month for a walk up in the Bronx and then $3,500 a month for a Fort Greene loft. Remember at the beginning when all the dorks were talking about the high Brooklyn rents? Here we go. And they're like, this doesn't add up. The guy makes $2,500 a month. Like, how does he have, like, you know, the money for these two apartments? And maybe it's another party location. Let's go check it out. Finn and Carisi go to the property in Fort Greene, and E. O'Hannigan is on the buzzer, and they're like, wow, that's ballsy. Just put his name on there. Like, and uh, they buzz and pretend to be UPS and get buzzed right in. And then they go upstairs, and they see this muscly stud in a vest and jean shorts, and he's like, hey, you're not UPS. And they're like, what's your name, cowboy? And he goes, Lance Woodstone, which is like a very old-timey porn name, I feel like. So they walk in and this place is a full BDSM sex lair. Like there's sex swings. There's a shiny red mannequin that has like a harness on it. There's one of those boards where I think you strap a person to it and like just like lightly torture them. I don't know, but it's definitely not just like a fun loft apartment. It's definitely there for a reason. And Lance claims that he is Eugene's personal trainer and he's such a bad liar and I'm living for it. Like I'm eating up every word. <laughs> With like BDSM, like it's like consent and yes, no, limits are very important. Yeah. And kink.com just released this like huge thing on their Instagram because there was a shoot where a woman was like, asking to be put down from ropes in the door. Like, they wouldn't let her down. Uh, 
and everyone's been fired. They brought in an expert, and they like just yesterday they posted this oh, giant wow. um thing, being like that it's so fucked up, and yeah, because so because this stuff's dangerous. You really have to like listen to. Yeah, if you don't respect safe words, then what are you even doing? Yeah. But the next thing we hear Finn say is, you use this ball gag in Pilates, and I love that. <laughs> it's like a classic deadpan Finn line. And then they, um, so they bring Lance down to the uh, precinct, and he's like, yeah, he's a priest. Uh, he likes to stay in shape. What's the big deal? <laughs> Hilarious. And he's like, I live in the loft full time. Um, but yeah, I chip in. And it's like, I bet you do chip in, buddy. They find out a little bit about this guy. The background on him is he's got an outstanding DUI. He's a personal trainer with no other clients. And he spends a <laughs> thousand... <000 laughs> He spends $1,000 a month on liquor deliveries and $500 a month on gift items from the pirate booty treasure chest. <laughs> Which I feel like the writers could have come up with something more fun as a place where you can get S&M gear, but here we are. Um, he says, it's not like I'm coming up with anything off the top of my head, but I'm also not being paid. He says he's been training him um, on and off for a few years. This is what Lance is saying about Father Eugene. And he goes, can I call my girlfriend? She's a lawyer. And it just like keeps getting better with this guy. Like I'm, I nominate him as one of the best little side characters that we get the one-time, never-recurring side characters. Um, so then in walks the girlfriend lawyer, and she's like, I'm a real estate attorney. And then she goes, well, broker, but I have some legal experience. It's <laughs> like, all these people are grifters. Like, every single person here is like a full grifter. Like, she's like, just a real estate broker who like knows a little bit about the law. And you can just see Barba like stretching his like, like cracking his knuckles, well, like and gearing also, up. Well, all real estate people are, you know, People that try to make an entertainment. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> They're all former yes. bottle girls. They're all just like women who don't want to stay at home, but don't actually want to work. Like, I don't know if I've met yeah. a real No offense to anyone. Well, I'm no, sure I, I haven't work. met that many people who like at a young age were like, I'm passionate about real estate, but it is like a lucrative business where you have to have good people skills. And that is like a lot of actors and performers and stuff. Like my friend is like a former opera singer. She's a great real estate agent, very successful. Um, yeah, Kendra Wilkerson from Girls Next Door does real estate. Oh, yeah, true. Okay, so you can just see Barba like getting ready to lay into this woman and she says she's Lance's girlfriend and guess what? She's also married. So this whole thing is a fucking mess. Uh, and she also says Lance has nothing to do with Father Eugene and hasn't seen him in a year. She said if he kept up that sick shit with Father Eugene, they were through. And it's like, babe, he's been living in his loft and getting lots of pirate booty treasures for the past years. So the girlfriend is pissed. She goes, that son of a bitch. I emailed the Monsignor about him two years ago and told them that Eugene was stealing money from the church to fund his deviant lifestyle. And then she shows them these pictures, which she obviously has in favorites because she gets to them two seconds on her phone. She shows them all these pictures of Father Eugene engaging in some major spank play. And she's like, some of these are on the church altar. And I'm like, <laughs> she goes, does that answer your questions? And I'm like, let this real estate agent sell me a condo. I love her. She is great. I also feel bad about what I said about real estate people. And you guys are skilled. There's a lot of escrow numbers percentages, <laughs> driving. There's a lot to do. And I take it back. I'm obsessed with my real estate agent, John. He's the best. Oh yeah, you no, know, you talk about him all the time. Yeah. <laughs> you know, my my real estate agent, John, I, at the beginning of our relationship, just thought I saw in an email that his name was Johnny. And I have called him Johnny, like by accident for years now. And that's not his name, but he's great. 
And he's at Compass in Highland Park if you want to do any Googling and get a, get a real great real deal in Highland Park, uh, California. So anyway, cut to Benson, Tucker, and Baby Dodds at another bar. Like we've been at seven bars this, these last two episodes and I'm loving it. So they're putting it all together. Father Eugene is Lance's sugar daddy and there's proof that the Monsignor knew about this. Okay, so like that is what the Monsignor has over Father Eugene. The problem is Tucker did meet with these bad guy cops a year ago, but he said it was a totally another matter. It was a pimp who accused them of shaking down girls and he'd accused a lot of people. So Tucker didn't record the conversation and his partner was out sick that day. So now it's basically these two vice cops and the church versus Tucker and it's he said, he said. So if everyone at St. Fabiola's has gone underground, then Eugene has no idea that you have his trainer. Light bulb moment. Let's get this, let's get a sting operation going. Next scene, we see Lance at the door of the apartment, Father Eugene running in and Lance is like, you're late, get on the ground, respect your master. So they've lured him into his sex den using his own Dom sugar baby. And I mean... It's just great. I'm like loving every second of this. Carisi and Finn show up and Father Eugene's like, what the hell? And Lance is like, sorry, they were going to give me a year on that DUI. And it's like, LOL that you trusted this adult for a second with your secrets. So they tell Lance to put clothes on. They threaten to call the Monsignor and it seems like Eugene might be at the point of talking. At the precinct, they're showing him all his naughty pics and he's like, that's in my past. And they're like, we just caught you about to get dommed. Like, and he goes, that's a private matter. Like he's very Boston, this guy, what he's doing with his accent, but we love Michael O'Keefe. And they're like, this isn't private if you're using church funds. And he said, no, I sold some family heirlooms. And he's, he's like, I'm a good man struggling with demons. And baby Dodds is like, just spill it. And he basically is still sticking to the story that his cousin Tucker is behind all of this. So now Barbara and Carisi, oh my God, I'm doing it so bad today. Barbara and Carisi are watching them through the glass, talking some shit out. They're like, okay, so the Monsignor came to Barba to dirty up Tucker. The letter from the Monsignor could have easily been backdated. It's a random photocopy of a handwritten letter. There's, I don't even know how that could be admitted into evidence. There's no postmark. Like it's, it's completely could be fabricated. And Carisi realized that he wouldn't let himself believe it. Like we're getting to Carisi's like, you know, reckoning with his own uh, doubts of the Catholic church. And Barba's like, he got me too. Let's let him know we're going to indict Father Acantola and Father Eugene. So now we're in Barba's office and Carisi and Barba are, I wrote Barb's by accident. That would be funny if we started calling him that. In Barba's office, Carisi and Barb's are confronting the Monsignor with the email from the real estate girlfriend about how Eugene was skimming money from the uniform fund at the school to pay for his sex idiot. And so he says he got it and he confronted Eugene and Eugene went on a sabbatical to deal with his demons and that they investigated the money claim and it proved to be baseless. He said he even forwarded it to a Bronx ADA. Father Eugene confessed, he soul searched and then they interrupt. They're like, well, he's actually still paying about $5,000 a month for his little cowboy friend. So he has not repented in any way or at least not changed his ways. And Barba says, you knew it. And that's how you got him to get girls for your ring, to frame Tucker for your crimes. And he goes, I know what you think about the church, but it's NYPD officers who are trafficking these girls. And then he rushes out. So then Carisi chases after him and begs him to come clean. He's like, acts like he's, he, this guy acts like a hero, the Monsignor. He's like, I went to the Bronx ADA. I went to SVU and I went to IAB. And all that's happened is that Nina and Kara are dead. The cancer is not within the church. It's within you. So this guy's doubling down and he's, you can see 
he's shifting the narrative to now this is a ring that's all being run from within the NYPD. And, you know, trust in cops is down at this point in time. So you could see how that could be. Uh, yeah, but I can see them engaging in the sex crimes, but I think they're all too dumb to orchestrate a charge. full. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Got it. Totally. The church is better at keeping secrets. <laughs> so we're at yet another bar, which you can tell this is like what the writer thinks about bars, that this is where non-religious people in hiding have to go. <laughs> And I'm like, oh, my favorite places? Okay. So Benson and Tucker are chatting and it turns out that the Bronx ADA, who the Monsignor forwarded the email to, is ding, 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 one of the guys they found in the raid. So he's fully a part of this whole thing. This goes all the way up to the top. ADA is like high up people. And Tucker says, that's how they do it. They have have a defense for everything. Benson gets a text. They turn on the TV and who's on the television but the Monsignor doing a press conference. I mean, I lived in New York for 11 years. I never turned on the TV and saw a priest just giving a press conference, but here we are. And we're th- and he's throwing Father Eugene fully under the bus for committing sins of the flesh, but he also accuses Vice and IAB of blackmailing Eugene into trafficking troubled girls. It's what Liv calls the scorched earth defense. He's like, this is none of us had anything to do with this. This is all them. And they're just throwing everybody under the bus that's helped them. Top of Act 3, we see Barbara watching the press conference as well, where the Monsignor continues to blame the NYPD to like, who ran like a ring of death and like they are responsible for Kara and Sister Nina and the Bronx DA's office and the city council and state assembly. And this goes all the way to the top. And then Bishop Catalano steps forward and asks the feds to come in and take this investigation from the corrupt NYPD. So, you know, bishops are very high up people and him calling on the feds, that's like a big, big power move. So Dodds is watching the end of it with his dad and his dad is like, eyebrows is like, you dodged a bullet. You're not bloodied up from this. Just leave it alone. And baby Dodds is like, stand down. The Monsignor is behind all of this. And Daddy Dodds is like, they're just going to claim that Akintola was a rogue thug and the vice cops will plead out and the church will send Eugene on a spiritual retreat. And they're like, well, what about framing Tucker? And he's like, he went to see his cousin alone and told him the name of the cooperating girl. She wouldn't be dead if he wasn't such a dumbass. And I got to give him this point. Like that is true. Eyebrows has a point there. But then Daddy Dodds tells Baby Dodds, this is a career killer. Walk away. He's He's like the political one and his son is like the one with like the actual what fairy tales tell us cops have the heart of gold and that they just want to help people. Baby Dodge shows up at Benson's apartment and ding dong, Tucker is there. And he's like, I want to be clear, you guys. My dad wants to throw you guys under the bus. And Tucker's like, yeah, no one covers their own ass like your dad. (laughs) And... I mean, Baby Dodds doesn't even register it as a burn at all. I guess he's like, you're right. And Liv's like, okay, well, let's work out a plan. Maybe Father Eugene is ready to save himself. And Tucker says he'll never turn on the church. And Baby Dodds is like, well, then we got nothing. Back at the precinct, Baby Dodds is downloading everyone and says, it looks like Tucker's just going to take early retirement. The vice cops are going to take misdemeanor sexual misconduct, please. And fingers crossed, Benson gets to come back to SVU. And they're like, and the church people, nothing is going to happen to them. The brass says, stop looking at this. And Finn is like, what about Sister Nina's murder? We got an eyewitness that saw her get shot. And then he's like, Interpol's looking for Akintola, Eugene is getting sent away. It's exactly like what, you know, it's exactly what Daddy Dodds was predicting is going to happen. Carisi wants to take another run at Father Eugene, but Tucker says he doesn't have a soul to save. So of course, 
Carisi goes to see Father Eugene at the place that they both hold dear, church, okay? They're at God's house now. And Eugene is like, get out of here. And Carisi's like, I'm a Catholic and I got something to say to you. I was born and raised in the church. I got priest cousins. I thought about becoming a priest myself. I went to mass every Sunday, two times a week I've been going during this case. And then he's like, think about yourself as a kid, about why you became a priest. Confess and be absolved. And Eugene says he prayed and prayed to be relieved of his weakness for being spanked, I guess. And he knew that they were going, what they were doing to those girls, but it was too late. Dylan, he says, no, God is still here. Um, and that's what Carisi says to him. And then he says, I think I'm blind to God now. And then he goes, no, just tell him how sorry you are and ask for forgiveness. And Eugene is crying. So Carisi meets him on his level, like Catholic to Catholic, and is like, ask God for forgiveness. Like, it's not too late to do the right thing. So the next scene, we're digging up something out of the ground in the back of the church. Like a whole police unit is digging up a bunch of shit from the ground and it's all these plastic file boxes. Uh Uh-oh, Daddy Eugene kept receipts. So we just found them. In the boxes are like all the receipts. There's records of the ring. There's records from Johns, different priests with the girls. There's photos of the Johns that are perfect for blackmail. And they're like, well, why did they have pics? Why did they take pictures of themselves with these girls? And um, I think Finn goes, they get off on it. That's like part of it. And um, there's psychological profiles from Father Eugene of the girls that they ended up tracking trafficking. There's meticulous accounting records, rental receipts, guest lists for every party, but there's no money because the fucked up thing about this is they're not doing it for the money. They're doing it to control the girls, pimp them out to high up people who in turn do favors for the church, like bri- like looking the other way. So they're just using the girls as human bribes instead of using money, which they could just use money. The Catholic church has a shit ton of money, but instead they're like using blackmail and, you know, sex with underage girls to keep all these people in power under their thumb. So why keep all of it? And he's, and Carisi goes, because they're Catholics. They don't get rid of anything. They just bury it. So Carisi is having a toughy Tuesday with his religion today. So now we're at the grand jury testimony at the top of Act 4, and there's a woman testifying about how 15 years ago, the Monsignor and the bishop called her into their office, and they did things to her that she thought must be normal because they were men of God. Then we cut to another girl. She's like, they made us take our clothes off, sit on their laps, touch us in what they called a godly manner, quote unquote. Another girl said, they took photos, made us pose naked, touching them, performing sex acts. And then the original woman says, they said if we told, they'd show our parents the photos of what dirty whores we were. They forced us to have sex with cops, lawyers, judges. The Monsignor or Father Eugene are who brought them to the parties. And for how long has this been going on? And Eugene is testifying now and he goes, over 20 years since Bishop Catalano ran the school. So this is like a deep, long ass conspiracy. He says, once Monsignor found out about his little dalliance with his, um, you know, sex boy Lance. He said his life in the church would be over if he didn't get him girls. So now Jefferson, one of the bad cops, is testifying from Vice. And he says, they discovered the ring, but rather than expose it, they joined in. So he's confessing on the stand. I don't really get, I guess there must be proof or some more proof. I don't know why these Maybe guys Maybe his confess. lawyer is also a real estate agent. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> Good one. Um, so Russo testifies that the Monsignor came to them and asked them to frame Captain Tucker. And they said, um, and say that they'd been blackmailed by him. So it's all coming together. We're getting all the truth. And then nuns are testifying. It's like a whole parade of people. The old nun who was stonewalling Carisi earlier is talking about how Father Akintola is in Cameroon and she bought the ticket for him herself, but it was under a different name at the behest of the Monsignor. So now we're in a holding room at JFK and we see Carisi and Rollins showing up to arrest Father Akintola. And he goes, it's a mistake. I'm a Nigerian national. And Carisi's like, you're not a priest. And that's like the worst, that's the worst diss Carisi could come up with. He's like, you're no priest. And we see baby Dodds leading Monsignor out of the church in cuffs and little old nun looks around like, what's going on? Like, we're we're seeing multiple people figure out that all their idols in this uh, institution are actually bad guys. Finn calls in from the bishop's house. He's not there. He's on the run, but we're checking the airports. So at the precinct, we find out Liv will be back first thing tomorrow morning. And Daddy Dodds is like, great job, guys. But I got to warn you, you went after some big guns. Keep your noses clean. Barbara's got indictments on lots of the power players, three assemblymen, a councilman, and two judges. But what about the bishop? Turns out the Vatican recalled him. He's going to a treatment center on an island off the coast of Chile. And... Okay, so, I love the way he said chili. <laughs> so he gets off. This bit, the highest person gets off as usual. Like the people at the top are always going to sacrifice the people that are lower than them in the scheme. So um, why would they let us get Father Akintola and Dodds is like, Akintola was a hired gun. He was a trade. It was a pawn for a bishop. So it's a game. Like, they don't give a shit what happens to Akintola as long as this bishop can, like, live his life. Even though he's truly the one at the top and has been masterminding this for 20 years. So now we're at our fourth or fifth bar of these, this whole saga. Benson and Tucker are having a red wine. Benson orders another red wine and suddenly Tucker's like... Hey, I thought we could I thought we could take it easy tonight. And she's like, "Babe, I love wine." And he's like, <laughs> "I get it." And she and she, and she's like, "No, I I understand. You're just looking out for me." And he says, "Always." And then she kisses his hand. We don't really get a lot of lip kissing between these two. It's a lot of forehead, hand, <laughs> cheek, you know. Two respectable people in their late 40s, uh, early 50s. So, in the final scene, just as Lisa predicted, we see Carisi going to church, not to confessional, <laughs> not to confessional, but to pray with his rosary. He's down that on his knees. That is the one thing I like. A rosary, a little bead. I, you love a, a jewelry fun. moment. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love Nicole Richie's rosary tattoo on her ankle down to her foot. You know, that really, I was like, yeah. I wish I could do that, but no Yeah, luck. yeah, yeah. I feel like Chris Maloney has a rosary tattoo. Am I crazy? I think he does. Anyway. Um, and then with Carisi on bended knee speaking to the Lord, that is Dick Wolf, baby. And that is the end of this saga. But I thought these were a great couple of episodes too. Really oh, yeah. bendy, twisty, turny. You know yes. the Catholic Church is going to be involved somehow, but how do we get to it is interesting. So um, I'm excited for you to... Tell us the crimes, baby. Don't be that excited. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place 
for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. So um, we have two cases for this. One is um, really long, really twisted, spanning decades and pretty horrific. There's a seven part documentary, The Keepers. The first is only articles in the New York Post or the Daily Mail. Not one real newspaper has commented on this case. And it's all pretty fucked up. And it's like um, all the newspaper covers that SVU makes fun of. So, yes. Which is the Post. I mean, they're making fun of the Post and then this is what the Post is covering, you know? Yeah, so it's all just like BDSM priest piss freak. You know, it's all like that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So the scandal went down in 2015 in NYC. um, And it went down because uh, Peter McKelly... Reverend, Reverend Peter McKelly, he was stealing money from parishioners and spending their money so wildly that they tried suing him in 2015 when they found (laughs) out that he stole up to a million dollars from his um, parishioners. Also, then his girlfriend of 10 years ratted him out to the church in an email that laid it all out (laughs) to say, do you, the church, you should know who your priest really is. So this guy is a disgraced, in quotes, sex slave priest who practiced in the Bronx. More specifically, he liked being a toilet slave, according to his girlfriend of 10 years. Okay. (laughs) And then she wrote, and if you're curious what a toilet slave is, then she like explains it. But I actually know, I knew a comedian in New York whose Instagram handle was toilet slave. So I am really interested in what it is. You just act like someone's toilet. Oh, you just like being pissed and shit on. Got it, got it, got it. I don't, shit might be the next level, but yeah, I think it's just like, um, you want to be humiliated as like a little toilet. But I used to have, so I loved Jackass a lot in my late teens, early 20s. And Steve-O, I would buy his own stunt DVDs. (laughs) There was one where he- (laughs) His his individual, his solo stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So there's one where he puts on this like, suit that is a urinal and he just lets strangers piss on him in the streets. It was also like straight up porn. It's like him fucking in it. I think he was in a really low point in terms of drugs and alcohol. Yeah. But yeah, you know, sometimes (laughs) he did sign it for me. When you're a fan, you're a fan. (laughs) Anyways, this guy was accused of embezzling a million dollars from the Bronx Parish to pay for sessions with his S&M master, Keith Christ. Who is... Wow. Well, it's C-R-I-S-T, but Christ, that's Christ. Chris. You think it's Chris? It is. My mom had a doctor in her practice with this last name, oh, and it man. was Chris. Okay, but so that, like, Keith that Chris. is a funny name if you're the s master for a priest to be like Keith Christ, and it's like, piss on me, Jesus. <laughs> like, I don't know. <laughs> it feels like so much more fucked up. And the Post described him as a beefcake, and he <laughs> charges $1,000 an hour. Wow. So this priest, it was just like really funny articles that really didn't take this seriously. But he loves um his muscle dom and he loved wearing a dog collar. Chris would force Father McKelly to drink his piss. Um, He also liked being called a clueless asshole, being publicly humiliated, laughed and degraded by him. And his ultimate fantasy was to go into the Hasidic neighborhoods and get humiliated in front of nice little Jewish girls. What the fuck? <laughs> 
He also spent a lot of stolen funds on illicit and prescription drugs. He bought an apartment in East Harlem with the stolen money. He took vacations to Italy and Florida. He did resign being a priest in 2016. (laughs) (laughs) But it took three years to be suspended by the Archdiocese of New York. Which I'm not surprised by. They let way worse crimes happen. But I just love that they kept holding on to him. Um, he was cleared of any criminal wrongdoing. And I wonder if they settled out of court or how they did it, but he was never actually charged with like the embezzlement and the taking of the funds or money or serve time. Like, so I don't really know how that worked. Yeah. Or the lawsuit, but whatever. Sadly, he did die at age 57 in 2020 at his home in New Jersey. And he died of liver damage caused by chronic alcohol abuse. So a, a sad life. end for that yeah. SM priest. But that's and I But kept they really short. did take a lot about they took a lot from this because like he he had a girlfriend, but they just gave the girlfriend to the to the Dom and then had her write the email. I mean, they took a lot from this. I love it. I like hearing 100%. the story. And because the next case is so lengthy, I kept it short. If you want more info on the BDSM priest. You know how to use the internet. So I just you wish know, this man could have been like, I just wish this man could have been like, the church isn't for me. I'm going to just go get pissed on and like live my life. And yes. I don't know, but I guess he needed the money. Yes. Why, maybe he did it to rid himself of his pissed fantasies. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I, I just, ugh, okay. So yeah. this next case is the ca- the case of Catherine Sesnick. And... I, I only watched the Keepers documentary. I did check in to see updates from 2020, if anything's happened. 2021, there's updates. And it's just about the students' lives as adults. There's not really been any solid stuff in the case or anything. So the doc is the main thing. Mm. So Catherine Sesnick was um, a nun. And the whole point is like, who killed Sister Kathy? We're trying to find out who killed Sister Kathy. Um, She was murdered in 1969, and then her body was found two months later. And this crime stayed unsolved still for decades, and the public wanted to know what happened. But she was a beloved teacher. She was like the cool girl. Like, everyone looked forward to her English class. You know, nuns are old. She was young. She cared. She, you know, they read fun books with her. They love, what is it, the Scarlet Letter? They're like, They just really um, liked her and she touched a lot of people. But what's wild is like the killing of the nun became not even the main story. The main story is the cover-up and why we didn't find out who did it and also why was she killed. So two former students of um, this Kehoe school where Sister Kathy worked are named Abby and Gemma. And they're kind of like the through line of this documentary. And they're little Nancy Drews. So I'm going to call them Nancy Drew throughout the the duration. Um, But they really took it upon themselves. They've researched constantly. And then one is the researcher and one is the bulldog. So I would say Kara's the Abby and I'm the Gemma of, (laughs) of the Nancy Drews, if you're wondering. But... Through their investigating, they brought all these victims together decades later in a Facebook group uh, for all these victims. And they kind of uh, broke this up. And they're incredible. They truly are incredible and have so much information. So we go back to the day. So it's November 7th, 1969. It was a Friday. Um, Kathy left school, got to her apartment, and then she lived there with another nun named Sister Russell Phillips. I've never heard of a woman named Russell. Have you? No, I haven't. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. 
I just found that kind of odd. Yeah. Both of them um, left the order, though, and they became public school teachers, and they rented an apartment in the southwest part of the city. Um, They did teach at this Kehoe school that was run by nuns, and then they had just left to start the school year in a public school. Um, Sister Russell taught math and was the cheerleading coach. Um, They were good friends. They They were always hanging out. So the night of her murder, Kathy left the apartment around 7 to go shopping for gifts, and dinner rolls in the Edmondson Village Shopping Center, which was only 1.9 miles away from the apartment. She stopped and got cash at the bank. Um, She, you know, she shopped a little. She had fun. And then from there, all the accounts vary. Like, there's no proof that she got back to the apartment. Like, she straight up vanished. Remind me where this is all going down. This is Baltimore. Yeah, that's right. Baltimore. Okay, I forgot. Good morning, Baltimore. And Baltimore has a lot of issues. They're like the first archdiocese. It's like a very Catholic area, which I Mm -hmm. didn't know because I think of Baltimore as hairspray, John Waters, cakes, ace cakes. What is it? There was like a fun cake. No. There was Cake Boss. Cake Boss. Cake Boss is in Baltimore. I think it's Cake Boss. (laughs) Ace of Cakes. Okay, I was right. Ace of Cakes. Yeah, but it's Duff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so Duff Goldman's from Baltimore. Um, but so I don't, I didn't really know. And The Wire, obviously. So now it's 11.30 p.m. Sister Russell is concerned, like, where the fuck is my friend? So she calls this guy, Father Gerard, a.k.a. Jerry Coob, around midnight. Kathy and him were friends, um, but that's weird. Why didn't you call the police? Like, why would you call this, like, random-ass priest? Like, even if they're really close friends, it just seems like a... Mm-hmm. A weird call. So Jerry said that him and this other priest, Pete, um, were at the movies in Baltimore that they wanted to see. It was Easy Rider. And they got back around 1030 and they don't really know. They were sitting talking about the movie when Sister Russell called them and asked about Kathy. So they drove down to the apartment immediately and they listened to Russell talk. And finally, after an hour, they're like, we should just call the police. So at 1.30 in the morning, they finally did call the cops. They described her as a missing person and the cop left and they sat around the table doing mass, praying, you know, whatever. And they're hoping hoping that Kathy's going to show up. Around 4 a.m., Peter and Jerry went to take a walk, and on their walk, they saw her car. So her car was, one door was unlocked. They entered, there were twigs, mud, leaves, muddy tires. It looks like the car had been a swampy area, which is strange. And even stranger, the car wasn't in its spot. It was parked with its rear sticking out across the street from the apartments. Whoever put the car there wanted it to be found, but also knows where Kathy lives or found her there because it's like, if you you must know her. Like, how do you know she lived there? Mm -hmm. So this was very strange. Um, Someone brought the car. Where the hell is she? Four days later, though, so nothing is solved. Four days later, another woman, Joyce Malecki, is abducted. Like, what are the odds? Same scenario with the car, everything. Her body was found first, though, face down in a river um, off a dirt road. And it's like someone didn't want her found. She was found um, by hunters with her hands behind her back and her fucking throat was cut. Oh, jeez. You're like, I watched The Keepers and was enthralled, like obsessed, but like I haven't watched it in years. So this is like a great well, yeah. walk down memory lane. I forgot. Yeah, so this came out in 2017 and you probably watched it right as it came out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, and I don't know why I didn't watch it. I think it's because I already have pretty bad feelings towards. <laughs> really, I don't know, but it is worse than I ever imagined. 
Yeah. Like, I'll say that. Like, I went into it being like, I'll, I'll know what it is. And I, I, a few, two episodes in, I was just like, head in my hands. So, Kathy's body was finally found January 3rd, 1970 in southwest Baltimore County. She was lying on her back on a hill with her skull caved in. She was stripped down to her waist with her purse laying behind her. I mean, beside her. The condition of the body indicated she was there for a while because there was no fresh blood. She wasn't stabbed or shot. But, you know, it's like, was she dumped there? Was she murdered there? What happened before her death? The cop's first idea was that a stranger did it. But again, how was the car driven back? Um, And like, you know, did they wave her down? Was she already back there? Why not dump the car in the woods and drive off? Like, there's just a lot of strange things here. Because if you don't want to get caught, why would you put the car right there with all the mud and yeah. And all that. So the cops also said there was no DNA evidence in the car at all. Um, And so that is the murder. So that is what happened to Kathy. And we don't know what happened. So, you know, she left this Kehoe school. And so the whole thing is, why did she leave? And is this connected to her murder? And like I said up top, the cover-up is even more fucked up than the murder. So there's a witness named Jane Doe, um, who was a student at the high school. And she says that, um, you know, there's a mystery around her identity for a really long time. Um, Jane Doe knows what happened and it took her 45 years to confront the full horror of what happened. So it's like repressed memory, like abuse to the nth degree. But she says that she was taken to the body and saw the dead body. So Jane Doe comes out in the dock to talk to Todd Nugent, who's one of the journalists that's involved throughout the whole dock. She believes that Kathy was murdered by someone. She knew who it was. It was not a stranger. And she was killed because she was going to talk about what happened at school and out everybody. And they used her death to keep Jane Doe quiet and all, and not speak out. So Archbishop Keogh was this prestigious, um, you know, hot Catholic school run by nuns and everyone wanted to go to. It was super exciting, but very strict. And a lot of nuns worked there and then two men worked there. And they were great guys. JK. We're going to find out. (laughs) Uh, Jane Doe went to confession one day to confess about how her uncle had molested her and he was a pedophile and she felt very guilty about it. After she confessed, the priest said, I don't even know if I can, if I, if God can forgive you. I'll pray on this and I'll get back to you. Now, 20 plus years later, she had a memory of this confession and realized that she was talking about the abuse while the priest that she was confessing to was masturbating the whole time asking for details and he was masturbating. As a kid, she didn't put it together, but as memories started flooding, she realized that he was jerking off listening to the abuse. Oh my God. A couple weeks later, after the confession, the same priest that she confessed to, Magnus, said he wanted to see her in his office and he told her that she was so bad It was going to take a long time to find out if God can forgive her. But if she emptied herself of these behaviors, then it would leave room for God to fill her with the Holy Spirit. So he then talks about his come as it was the Eucharist and a sacrament, and he would use it to make symbols of the cross. So he would say that his come is the Holy Spirit and that she had to swallow it or have it on her to to be free of this. She didn't realize it was abusive because this is a man of faith and authority and he was helping her become a good person. And he was reminding her like, you made those things happen. You were molested because you're a dirty fucking whore. So after a few of those sessions, she went back into the room and there was another man in there, Father Maskell. 
not, not Mezcal. Google Drive kept trying to change. <laughs> Uh, over and over, mezcal, mezcal. It's not fucking mezcal, mascal. <laughs> um, and he also was like, you're a whore, you're a whore, we'll pray for you. So now it's a two-on-one situation. So they both represented God. So they started like both raping her. Ugh. She wanted to get out, but felt like she had to be in that room to be a good person. And so all of this really confused the hell out of her. And uh, one day she was in there and it was just mascal, and he was angry at her because she wasn't getting better. Um, but, and he's a piece of shit. Like he is an awful person. He wanted to be a priest since he was a kid. And to me, that's scarier than burning animals as a kid. Like if you're seven, you should not want to be like, I'm going to be set. Like, it's just like a wild, I think, passion for a child. <laughs> So, like, this guy had a gun. Um, and one time, like, uh, a, an altar boy um, was like, why do you have a gun if you're a priest? And he said that the guy looked at him like, how dare you go against me? And he said he's never seen a look like that ever again until he became a police officer and started interviewing violent felons. This was, uh, you know, a gun-toting priest. And this is very connected to the episode. He was a counselor. He was the guidance counselor. He was a psychologist, very into psychology. So all of these sessions were under the guise of guidance. And not only that, because not only is everyone confessing to you, but seeking guidance because you're the guidance counselor. So he knew the troubled kids. So he knew who to go after. Yeah. Also, to make matters worse, this guy was the chaplain for the police, the Air National Guard, and the Maryland State Police. He was covered on all ends. And his father was a Baltimore policeman as well. He was friends with all the cops and he provided the men what they wanted. So like one time Jane Doe said that a man in full police uniform was there to rape her. So not only was this guidance counselor and this other father bringing these girls in, raping the shit out of them, saying it's their fault, sending them back to class, he would have police officers in uniform in the guidance room raping these children as well. To the point where uh, one cop said he didn't want to do it, but Maskell encouraged him to do it. One time, Jane Doe said he took the gun out, took the bullets out one by one, told her if her father ever found out she was whoring around, put a gun to her head, pulled the trigger and said, your father will do the same thing, but he'll keep the bullets in. And obviously she was scared. This is what I'm telling, like what I mentioned in the episode where it's like, you know, they get off on, I think, extra torture and keeping the people silent and scared. Yeah. Yeah. Every time it was over, Jane Doe said, maybe this is the time God will forgive me. Like, she oh. truly, like... Yeah. Um, he was doing this to lots of students. So he would call students' names over the loudspeaker, and if your name was called, like, you could just... You could tell other kids knew what was about to happen. Um, and one time her name was heard, and she started crying, and the teacher said, you have to go, even if he's weird. So these girls were living in constant fear, forced to go to this guidance office. And the teachers would also look down like they knew something was going on. Um, and they would just let, one by one, these girls go get molested by this freak. So after the end of that school year, all the students came back in the fall of 1969. Kathy was gone. Maskell was still there. And this is what I'm saying. She went to go be in the public school. Kathy Jane, is Catherine, right? You're calling Kathy. Catherine says yeah, right? yeah, yeah, Sister yeah. Kathy. Yeah. Sister Kathy. Sister Kath. After seven episodes, she's Kathy to me. Okay. <laughs> um, and Jane Doe was sent back to her, the office and Maskell said that during the summer, someone approached him and said that he was hurting the girls. And if she told anybody, 
you know, she denied it. She's like, I didn't tell anyone. And he goes, I hope not. I think we need to remind you who the real whore in this room is. And then she left the room. And so, you know, all the girls were sad they didn't have Kathy. Kathy wasn't there. Like, you know, what's going on? Kathy's priest friend said that she left because she realized she didn't know what it was like to be a regular girl on the outside and like that she's been hidden behind religion. And she wanted to go work in public schools to like, as an experiment so they the nuns can learn about the real world. So Sister Russell and Kathy were two nuns um, that left to go work in the public school. And we know that Jay, Jane Doe, and her name is Jean Marie Hargaden. She did not come forward until the 90s. But, um, so I'm going to interchange. Jane Doe is Jean. Mm-hmm. And this other girl, Kathleen Susan Hobeck, and then a third anonymous student all told Sister Kathy what was happening to them. We also then learned that the anonymous third student was at Kathy's apartment the night before she disappeared. So while she was at the apartment sharing about the abuse and everything, Maskell and Magnus came into the apartment knocking. Like these people had so much fucking power. They sent the girl out of the house. The next day she went to school. He brought her in and said, if you say anything, I will kill both of you and your families. So they never said anything again. And then Kathy disappeared. So the anonymous woman has lived in fear her whole life. And now Jane Doe was asked to go to the office after school. And Maskell was frantic. And he goes, I know you're close to Kathy. I want to let you know she's missing. And I can take you to her. And she goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to see Kathy. They left the room. They drove down to the woods. Um, They're like walking to the woods. He walks her to Kathy's dead body. He came down close as she leaned over Kathy's body. He said to her, see what happens when you say bad things about people. And then the abuse became worse than it ever was. And then the girl went back to school and another man, Maskell, let assault the girls was there. And it was a man named Brother Bob. We don't know who Brother Bob is. She really repressed all of this. It is slowly coming back to her in time. Mm -hmm. We don't know who Brother Bob is. She claims that this brother Bob said that I killed Sister Kathy and like admitted it to her. And then would, um, and then the Bob guy would like rape her as Maskell stood outside. And, um, and she, he also told her, like, and you better not tell anyone I did it because it's your fault that it happened. Jesus. So again, was it Maskell? Was it Bob? Was it a group effort or someone else? Whose mm-hmm. fault is it? So she kept it to herself until the early 90s. So what happened was, you know, she didn't really have memories of this. She runs into a former student who's pressuring her to go to the reunion. And she's like, go to the reunion, go to the reunion. And she like didn't know why she didn't want to go so badly, but she knew she couldn't go. She confided at her um, to her pastor at the time. And he was like this beloved pastor. They were friends. She told him everything. She trusted him as a pastor and a priest. And so he let her know Magnus is dead, but Maskell was an active pastor still. So what are we going to do? So she went to talk to people from the archdiocese. They told Jane Doe that she was the first person to make a complaint about him, um, but she was believed. And they warned her like, you know, he's really smart. So get all your shit together so he can't slip through your fingers. So at the time in 1982, he was working at Holy Cross Church in Baltimore and Jane Doe came forward. This woman, Hoskins, is the lawyer for the diocese, suggested that Jane Doe get her own lawyer as well, just, you know, because just in case Maskell comes after her. She hired a man named Steve Tully, but the church still paid for him. Um, and they they assured, they're like, we're on the same team, we're on the same team. They asked her to make a formal statement. She was super scared, but she wanted to do it. But they said that's not enough. And they're like, um, go through the yearbook and name everyone else that was abused. And she's like, fuck that. I'm living in hell. I would never put someone through this hell. I'm not yeah. implicating other people. Um, she did make a list of adults that were abused, um, but they refused 
to talk to them. They only wanted children that were traumatized. And since nobody was helping her, she fired this guy and um, hired her own lawyer. So while this was happening, the church just moved him like they always do. And they t- they made him go to this place um, called the Institute of Living in October 1992. He was there till 1993 in Connecticut. <sighs> do you know about this place? No. It's a place where they treat clergy who abuse children. But it's like, you can also just put them in pres- like prison. Like, why are these people above the law? Yeah. I don't oh, it's understand. In Hartford. It's in Hartford. It's where I went to college. You know, she got her own lawyer, Beverly Wallace. Fuck yes. Don't send a man to do a woman's job. <laughs> Finally, Jane Doe reaches out to a friend through the yearbook to chat. And they started talking about Kathy. And she starts to have a feeling like, fuck, I really loved her. But then all these memories came up. And then she was like, fuck, I killed Kathy. And at the time, she was having meetings with her family and all her siblings to talk about the abuse she endured with her uncle and just having open conversations. And it seems like she just came from such a loving home. Like all of her siblings really had her back. No one was like, I love the church more than you. Like everyone was like, fuck your uncle, fuck the church. Like, let's deal with this. And so she brought up all these memories. And so then she went to the police and she told the truth to them. The cops didn't believe her. Shocker. Mm Mm-hmm. In 1993, the cops did reopen the investigation because of the new details it was written about in the paper. So the paper is running these stories about Maskell in 1983 and the church. And like, there all these, all these articles are coming out and the case being reopened. So because of all these articles, this uh, a journalist went to go talk to him. He was charming. He denied everything. Uh, what You know, he said this was hysterical nonsense. She was really terrified for her family, the safe, you know, and safety. And the church basically said, there's no corroboration. Um, we can't do anything. Um, but thank God she had this big ass Catholic family. So what they did, um, they like got alumni lists from the school and sent out a thousand letters to everyone and said if anyone else had fucked up stories from school to reach out to this new female lawyer. People started to call. The first woman um, is a woman named uh, Teresa and she named Maskell immediately and started spilling the beans. Like she was just holding on to this for fucking decades. This motherfucker was kept suggesting that she should go to doctors she didn't need and give her like medicine for diseases she didn't have. Sounds like my urgent care doctor who told me that I had shingles when I did not. Okay, <laughs> so... No, but this is so fucked. Jokes aside, he sent her to the gyno. um, And then the gyno was like, you have to douche three times a week. And she was like, what? And so Maskell's like, I'll do it for you at school. So she was like, so this priest was like douching her at school. He then convinced people she had schizophrenia and got her on schizophrenia meds. Mm -hmm. And her parents just believed everything. And he would call um, sometimes. Like, they just let him do whatever. And like one time on Halloween, she said she was at a sleepover with a friend. He called and goes, hey, I'm doing a police run. And I want to bring the girls with me. He picked these girls up from the sleepover and then let police rape them in the car. Yeah, it's like the with the parents, it's like abducted in plain sight. Like there's religion all over that story. You know, like if like it just teaches you not to question authority. Good. I forgot about that one. Yeah. You know? And, you know, this is another, these are the facts. This Teresa girl, she wanted to go to law school. She had great grades. She had her whole life ahead of her and he stole everything. She got married very young, had kids. Like her life was just put on hold. You would like to know though, she did become a lawyer at 49 years old. Yes. Go, Teresa. Um, After that, after um the letters, they also decided to put an ad in the paper for people to reach out. 
And they had a super overwhelming response. And um, they ended up getting about 40 to 50 uh, people coming forward and telling their stories. They interviewed everyone and every single student brought up Father Maskell, all of them. This motherfucker was molesting dozens of students in that school. He and this doing, is one school. He's been one. To, he's been to a handful of schools. Oh, half yeah. a dozen schools. Yeah. So cut to 1984. A man named Mr. Story who worked at the cemetery back during Maskell's day said that one day Maskell came to him with all these boxes and like wrapped in plastic and made him bury all these boxes in the back of the cemetery. Just like in the episode. Yes. Wow. And while he was going and get more boxes, Mr. Story looked and he said that he found a bunch of photo. It was a bunch of photos of girls topless with their shirts open. Not for magazines, photos. So these are yeah. like original photos. Yeah. He was fired a few months after that and kicked out of that school because right. he knew the truth. Um, but in August of 1994, he made a call and off the record told the police where to find these boxes. So this detective, um, the Nancy Drews, and so the detective, they called him Deep Throat. He is like full, he, does, he wants to be careful. He goes, this goes deeper than you can imagine. No names being used. His voice is like hidden. Like Deep Throat does not want to. Yeah. Come forward. Um but he knows what was in the ground. And Deep Throat says, like I said, all these photos were there. And then he goes, and this is what we're talking about with um, in the episode two. He goes, this is classic pedophile. They can't part from their collection. Even if they can't get to it, they like knowing that it's there. Yes. Yeah, you can't destroy it. So Deep Throat meets Mr. Story. They go driving and Story has all this info and it's going to blow this case open. They drive to the cemetery. Cops are digging. The journalist is there. They're digging all this stuff up. They're putting garbage bags of everything in the van. They're like, we have enough to arrest him. Let's go, let's go. And then Sharon A.H. May, I think we should go to Baltimore and throw eggs at this bitch's house. She's still working. She was the state's attorney for sex crimes and she would not prosecute. She would not do anything. At all. There were a hundred women complaining. They didn't do anything. So this deep throat guy sits in 2015 with the Nancy Drews and with Jane Doe and Jane Rowe and is like telling everyone. And he goes, that bitch always ran interference for the church. She'd kill every single case. And she's arrogant because Sharon's in the dock. She oh. fully goes on the dock and does interviews. She said she was excited to get there and look at the evidence because it was a great day and she had a new convertible. So she couldn't wait to drive in her red convertible to go look at evidence of molested priests. Like, she legit is talking about her cool. She's nuts. Yeah. She said that everything was wet and messy so and she couldn't connect anything to Maskell and that was that. She's denying there were pornographic pictures. She says there were no photos. She's just like, there just wasn't. And she talks in a way where she doesn't find this serious and horrible. Like, she's not remembering things. She's like, I don't know. I, I'm not really, well, didn't, doesn't ring a bell. Like, nothing, it's wild. But she goes, nothing in each case could stand alone on to prosecute. And they're like, yeah, but you knew he was guilty even though you couldn't pro like prosecute, right? And she's like, no, 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 no. I don't like the church. I am not there to protect. I'm not Catholic. Fuck deep throat. I don't care what he says. I don't care about the church. I just do my job. And it's like, well, then who's lying? Is it Mr. Soar? Like, who's lying? Yeah. yeah. So now our Nancy Drew babies are trying to find any documents from archives, courts, cops, cases. No files are found. 
They keep saying there are no cover-ups or protection to these priests, but then where are the documents of complaints? So the Nancy Drew Abbey, the care of the group, she has written to the CIA, the city of Baltimore, FBI. She's enacted the Freedom of Information Act request to all these places, nothing. It's been years and there's no documents. We know between 30 and 100 Kehoe women went to the police to file complaints. Beverly Wallace, the Jane Doe lawyer, said she sent all of her notes and papers. She turned everything over. Nothing is found. There is no documentation of anything. And they're saying there's no cover-up. Like, what? There would at least be, there would at least be, he rubbed my back in a weird way. I mean, like there would at least be some like low level accusations. You can't clear everything out. That looks fucking suspicious. Oh yeah. So then even Wilder, the archdiocese, has a list of clergy that are accused of child abuse with 50 names on it, yet none are showing up in the records. So how is the archdiocese admitting to pedophiles, but not the police? I mean, this is like, I think SVU did a really good job of like showing how intertwined. Yeah, because these police, these police, they all have something on all these police, and they're all Catholic. I don't yeah. know. I made that up. I'm like committing well, there, that, hate crimes. That could be, I mean, some there could be no. Two things can be true. They can be they can be cops that are like I'm Catholic. I don't want to investigate these guys. They didn't do anything. But there's also a policeman that was in the room m- raping this girl. He's gonna make sure all those reports are destroyed. You know what I mean? Like, oh yeah. Um, only one. Priest was found guilty, and it's because he pled guilty. Wow. So Gene, Teresa decide to sue his ass because there's nothing else that they can do. And that's Jane Rowe and Doe. So they file suit against him, the nuns, the archdiocese, and the gynecologist. The news comes out about the lawsuit. And all the other students are wondering who came forward because it's still like Jane Doe and Jane Rowe. Um, a lot of the women still did not want to come forward because everyone was horrible to these women. I mentioned this while you were recapping. Like one of them said her family was talking shit about how these women just wanted money. So she decided not to come forward. These women were scared and didn't want to blow up their lives. So Jane Doe and Roe went to get deposed and Jane Doe says it was devastating. Six days of questioning to build, to break them down. Very intense. It was just a really fucked up moment for them. Guess who wasn't deposed? Maskell. The church took him out and no one ever saw him again. Like no one could find him. So this motherfucker doesn't get deposed and just skips town with the help of the church. And the big thing with this case, um, which is, I feel like a whole separate thing that I I am just going to touch on lightly is this passed the statute of limitations, but they were trying to prove repressed memory and how the memories just came to them so that they should be able to prosecute since like they didn't know what was happening to them. Mm -hmm. Um, But a bunch of these Catholic defense people were dismissing the case fully. They're like, this is stupid. And the judge threw the suit out as well. And said, we're not able to take this to court because their memory, these women are not credible. And that's that. And there was a lot of stuff about repressed memories. And now we know more about trauma and all of that. But in the 90s, they really were like, we can't trust these people. Because on those daytime talk shows, people would go and like pretend, you know, there's an episode of SVU about not real repressed memories. So it was just like a controversial thing. Mm -hmm. And the suit was not allowed to go. Now there's another woman. So it's, her name is Lil. Mm -hmm. And I love that. Lil. Like Phil and Lil from the Rugrats. I didn't want, I like love that. Lil Hughes, Nip, Kip, whatever. Lil Hughes, Kip. I think it's Nip if it's K-N. It is? Okay. Yeah. 
I just, because it sounded like nipple, I got uncomfortable. Okay. <laughs> um, Lil Hugh's nip was class of 1971. And one day, um, she got word in the late 90s that Father Maskell was at Stella Maris um, hiding in the dementia ward. So she snuck her ass in there. She, she did what Kara did to get us into the press box at Ice Tea Star. <laughs> She was, like, pretending she was looking for a job, like, followed the things, looked at the coat. Like, she just, she snuck her way into him, his dementia room. He was in his 60s in the bed, and when she went over to him and tried to talk to him, she said there was nothing there. No one was home. No evil, no nothing, just dementia. Fuck that dude. But he died in his 60s with dementia. Ugh. So, Mary... Kathy's sister remembers that after Kathy went missing, she did go back. Mary went back to school, was sitting in her room. A letter arrived from Kathy. It had her handwriting on it and she had very distinctive handwriting. It was her. She called her father immediately because he worked at the post office and he said, tell me everything the postmark says. After she read it to him, he goes, that was sent after Kathy went missing. Don't open it. It can be evidence. So she called the cops. The cop came, one in, in uniform. She expected a uniform cop, but it was just like a guy not wearing a uniform. He took the letter and she was nervous. And she's like, what the fuck? He wasn't wearing a uniform. The dad goes, don't worry, girl. It was a detective. You did the right thing. The whole time she was told it was an evidence and that's why they couldn't release it. And she, you know, she wanted to know what it said. It's like her words from her missing sister. Yeah. Um, so she went back years later to try to look at the letter, even if she can't touch it or take it. Can I just please see the letter? They don't have the letter. They don't have Ugh. it. There's no letter. Where is it? Where is the letter? Yeah. So Jean and 11 other survivors received settlements from the archdiocese ranging between 25 and 50,000 in addition um, for funds for two to three years of continued counseling. Jean took the cash but said no thanks to counseling because fuck the church. Um, and the diocese did not want to be in the dock, but they supplied them with written answers to questions and denied everything. And that was that. Um, another part of this that we're not going to go into, but we have talked about in another episode is statute of limitations in Catholic school, in just Catholic abuse and how the Catholic church is fighting so hard against the statute of limitations. Like they want to increase the age because basically they're saying you have to come forward by the time you're 25. And it's like many of these people live with shame until they're 50. It, like it's just yeah. bullshit. And everyone thinks it's like, well, you're attacking the Catholic church. And they're like, no, we're talking about abuse. You're making it about the, like you're telling on yourselves. And another, like one of the people that was like um, testifying in those hearings said something like, you know, we all have deep, dark secrets. Like, if you think it's so easy, why don't you get up here and tell everyone your secret? Like, demanding at 25. Like, I just, I always refer back to the Colleen Stan case, one of our earliest episodes where the prosecutor said, can we stop expecting people to act normal when abnormal things happen to them? Mm -hmm. And it's like, why? I hate everything. What are your yeah. thoughts? This was long, well, but I feel like it went by pretty fast. Am no, I delusional? Yeah. I mean, you de you definitely took seven hour documentary and distilled it down into like, yeah, <laughs> your part. Like, so that, but um, th thank you for doing all this because it's definitely such a heavy case because it's not just about her murder. It's about a full fucking cover up. But, and like, I kind of, like, this episode came out before The Keepers. So this story was already breaking and was, like, part of what people were interested in. So I love SVU for staying on top of everything, but Just thinking of you. these young girls with, like, 
come on their bodies, like made into a shape of a cross sitting in class after getting raped by cops and having to learn in school. Ugh. I, I, and it's, it's like just, letting any authority figures like tell you whether you're good or not. Like whether it's with like, wh- you know, whether it's with like Hail Marys or like sexual abuse. Like it's just horrible. Like I, we just need to let everybody... We just need to not have this, uh, this like, just blanket power that these guys have in the church. It's fucked. And just the demands we put on children when we don't even know what they're going through. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, Jane, what's so fucked up is that Jane Doe, a.k.a. Jean, had a great family. And, like, they just kept telling her, we're going to kill your dad. Your dad will kill you if you tell him this. And, like... He, they probably would have supported her. They probably would have believed her, you know? Yeah, she thinks about that a lot. And also her husband was awesome. Yeah. He passed away, but um, he was like a really supportive, great She was so person. brave coming forward in that doc, really, like telling everything that happened to her. I remember that stuck with me after I watched it. But listen, we have an amazing interview. Oh, you're gonna... This, that's yeah. gonna absolutely <laughs> blow your socks off. From horror... To horny. Yeah. (laughs) Stay right where you are. Okay, guys, before I introduce our guest today, I just want to give a quick note that a little bit of human error happened on this episode interview where I did not press record on my device until about halfway through the interview. So there are places of this interview where my audio sounds a little bit different than other places. You can still hear me, but I might sound weird. So before you all get your DMs geared up, like something's off with the sound, it was my fault. I apologize to myself and to Casey and to all of you. And so that's that. Now, with no further ado, our guest today is an actor who I'm just going to admit that I have a crush on and he has worked worked very consistently over the past 30 years. You may know him as the lead in RoboCop 3, Stephen King's Thinner. Also, he was Bart Bass on Gossip Girl and had a recurring role on Rescue Me. But you know him as IAB jerk, Olivia Benson love interest, and in my opinion, perennial hottie, Captain Ed Tucker. Guys, enjoy our interview with the adorable Robert John Burke. Honestly, we can't believe it. We're, <laughs> We're so, so excited. excited to have you. We've been wanting you for years. <laughs> well, usually IAB, everyone's like, great, it's Tucker. But the moment I saw your face on the screen, I like couldn't believe it. We're so pumped. <laughs> Where are you Thank in the you. world? Um, I'm on a barrier island called Fire Island in New York. Oh, you're in Fire Island? Yeah. Oh Where are you guys? Cool. We're in LA. We're in LA. Oh, we I live here year-round. Really? You live in Fire Island year-round? Yeah, for 20... 20- 21 years. And we did read about you became a firefighter. I'm a state certified firefighter. I'm active. If this goes off. um, You have to stop the interview. Well, (laughs) this is what it'll sound like. Ocean Beach Fire Department. Okay, so that's a radio test going on. Do you know Kevin Fox, who was a writer and producer of Special Victims Unit? We are, no, yeah, we'd yeah. love to I was, know him. I, I was doing an interview with him once, a, a Zoom thing, and I got called out for a medevac with a helicopter coming in. And I said bye, and I left. And and I recorded a message while we were at the medevac, and I sent it to him just to show I've really gone to this. <laughs> and, but, you know, I got back in time. They were still on the, um, on the Zoom uh, podcast, what have you. 
And uh, that was pretty funny. He's like, oh my God. I was like, yeah. So, that is crazy. So it- it's good. It's, you know, it helps the community. Um, this time of year, if somebody uh, has a medical emergency, um, 75% of the time, I'm going to know who it is and what their particular ailment might be. With contractors working on houses this time of year, the fires that we'll get are, you know, pretty straightforward residential structure fires. I'm cognizant of the fact that tomorrow we're going to have a big wind condition, so we'll probably have power lines down. So there's all these considerations that are part of the volunteer fire service. Wow, that's amazing. Did that influence what happened to your character in season 21? Because he had cancer with the debris from 9-11. Was that at all part of um, your yes. own journey? I, yeah. I, yeah, I knew, uh, like my best friend, this fellow. His name was Captain Patrick Brown. He was the captain of Ladder 3 in Manhattan. Very highly decorated. Legendary on the on the FDNY, and he fell on that day. So my fire service is dedicated to his memory, and I lost a lot of friends that day, like a lot of people did. But at the same time, I was very aware of people who had had and still come down with cancer and stuff like that. When we were shooting that episode, there was multiple suicides in the NYPD. And I thought, so Dick Wolf wants to kill me, eh? Um <laughs> I don't want a piano dropped on my head or, you know, die of a heart attack while I'm eating an ice cream. So I pitched them this idea that I would ultimately succumb to uh, cancer brought on by 9-11 involvement and um, that the character may take his life and that we would speak to um, suicide prevention and, and, and reaching out for help in the NYPD and first responders with a rider at the end of the episode and, and, they went for it. It was really, really interesting. They added like other tragedy in that episode, which I thought was a little heavy handed, but what could I do? <laughs> what? Um, well, no, um, like I think there were three suicides in the episode. Oh, so, gosh. you know, for, so for 44 minutes of drama, that's kind of packing it in there, but um, could have done without one of them. Um, yeah. <laughs> let's but, cut one. Um, yeah. Let's, let's go. <laughs> but I thought it was, uh, I, I don't know how to feel. It was it was real because people were doing that. You yeah. know, people were taking their lives. And I work with a foundation called VetHack, and it's to uh, help out and support veterans that they not take their life. And a lot of people don't want to go near that topic because, well, I'm a civilian, first of all, so, you know, I should have no say in that. But that's not what I'm there to do. I'm not there to say anything. I'm just there to support people and listen, um, raise awareness, raise money, um, march with them, um, have fellowship with them and, um, appreciate them. And I do that and, and I, I enjoy it because they're the greatest people ever, you know, and, um, you know, it's a lot, it's very complimentary, the, the military and the fire service and not right wing or left, none of that. It's just people, yeah. uh, people helping people. And, um, so yeah, <laughs> my art and my life sometimes they they kind of uh conflate and um yeah it's good well it's and Mariska Hargate is the same thing right she ha- she does a lot of philanthropy that mixes in with her character as well so yeah it, and she doesn't have to she never had yeah. to she could have gone home and put her feet up um yeah. you know that writer at the beginning of the show for 20 some odd years particularly heinous. Yeah. You know, who wants to like be involved with 
you know, everybody wants to just like have a nice life and the path to least resistance, but that was not her path. And it's mind boggling the amount of feedback that she's gotten, the amount of help that she's rendered. It's mind boggling the numbers with the backlog of rape kids. I think I know things. I read the paper. I, you know, you know, but when I found out about that, I was like, wait a minute, how can that possibly be? Municipalities, police organizations should be on top of this. They're not. Mm. And, and so the awareness and the action and the legislation, I mean, this is just an actress, right? She's supposed to just say her lines and go home. Well, she didn't. Right. Yeah. Love her. <laughs> <laughs> this this is like a good this is a good segue into the SVU talk, which okay. is what we're here for. <laughs> yes. And I you are you not you, Robert John Burke, you Ed Tucker are my choice for her romantically. Obviously not possible anymore. But <laughs> I, it was like when everybody's like she could dream. Yeah. <laughs> But there's so many people that are like into the stable or Benson of it all. And I always say, I think Ed Tucker was the best one for her. Like, I really liked your guys' romance on the show. How did that, like, you you guys obviously have a rapport and a chemistry on screen and off screen friendship, right? So I don't know what I'm asking. What was yeah, that like? <laughs> I, 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 I often thought to myself, I wish they had told me this earlier. <laughs> uh, um, we were shooting a scene one day where I was being particularly harsh with her and she's looking at me and I'm looking <laughs> at her and she grabbed me and she goes, you're going to be my, look at that face. You're going to be my love interest. And I was like, <laughs> what? And she's like, yeah, next season you're going to, we're going to start to, we're going to be, you're going to be my love interest. And I was like, I, I, I was shocked. I was like, and then I think Ice-T said something like, that's going to be a slow boat to turn around. <laughs> I mean, I think I was like the most hated character. Anytime <laughs> yeah. I showed up, Everybody had a line like, "Up oh, here he is, the rat squad. Blah, blah, yeah, blah, blah. Yeah. And I've known guys who've been in internal affairs. You know, um, some police officers, they land in internal affairs and they stay there for a career because they like it. You know what I mean? But if you're going up the ladder in the police service, um, you know, it's a place you have to touch. You have to touch the door there, hang out there for a year or two, and then you keep going. So I didn't want to play the role um, stereotypically. However... By the time Marishka said to me, yeah, Tucker and, and Benson are going to like start to fall off, I, I was just like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, to their credit, I think they, they really slowly, slowly, slowly brought it around. But again, I wish I had been nicer. <laughs> we always joke they just won't let Olivia be happy. Like, And your death was another kind of oh horrific tragedy for her You're of not me? finding it. Well, I was going to say, is that why they did it? Like, why was, why were they so insistent on your character when you found that out? You had to do with, like, how it happened. But when they found, when you found out you were going to get killed off, were you like, what the fuck? Yes, I was. Yeah. <laughs> you know why? Because I liked going there. I tell you, yeah. out of all the people I've ever acted with, there was something about doing scene work with her we we would act with each other, but we would act at each other. And she would raise the bar and I would try and raise the bar and she would raise... And like, sometimes you settle and you don't phone it in, but you know that this isn't terribly important, this scene or this movie. Or, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but with her, uh, I always, um, I always seem to want to do my best 
for her and with her. Not, not so much to show, just her. She elicited that in me. And, and I, I, I said to her once, I said, you know, when I, when I act with you, it's like kind of like a rush. It's, it's just this great, uh, feeling. And, and, and I hope it's turning out okay. Um, but, um, and like even in the years when I was like really a bastard to her and everything, I, who wants to play the nice guy? Hello, Olivia. No. You want to come in there and you want to rock people's world. You want to rattle the cage. You want to just really get in her face because that helps her character be more heroic and, you know, rise above and and be more triumphant. So it was fun. And that's why I didn't want to lose the job. But, you know, uh, you know, that's the way that show is. And you started on season three in like 2002 and then ended it in 2020. Like, I mean, Obviously, no one can know a role is gonna is gonna span eighteen years. But when you first started in a, in in season three, did you know this was gonna be sort of recurring? Or every season they asked you back, you were like, "Oh, hey, it's it's this again, cool." Or um, I think having played three different characters on the Mothership, uh, Law oh, and right. Order, um, someone said to me, "They must be up to the bees again." <laughs> <laughs> um, but so then. I, I think I auditioned for Special Victims Unit for a cop and didn't get it. And then another cop and didn't get it. It's like, if they don't see me as a cop, there's that really... Then I remember my representative called and he said, oh, you know, they're offering you this role. He's the internal affairs guy. And I was like, oh, great. Um, <laughs> uh, and it's it, there's the possibility to recur. So I was like, okay. And I can't really remember my first episode or anything, but I remember what was being asked of me. Do you know what I mean? Uh, you're going to yeah. be a heavy. You are going to foil our heroes. And um, that's your job. No one cares about your motivation. No one cares about it. Just get in there. And and they're such a well-oiled machine that you mustn't, as an actor, be thinking about, what's my motive? No, no, no. It's on your market set. Go, brother. You know what I mean? Right, and right. And so I, I sense that in that production. They were just so well-oiled. Uh, Christopher... Mariska, everybody knew their lines, you know, like there was no, there was no real room for error. And that's just professionalism. I mean, that's the way it's actually supposed to be. Um, other times in one's journey and career, you find people who are not as professional and it's just, it's exhausting. Anyway, um, so no, I didn't know I was going to be there. Uh, I, I used to always leave the set and I'd say, if it is your will that I return here, I'll be fine with that. <laughs> um, and and so when I would show up, it would be fun. And Maloney was fun. You just mentioned Maloney, so I just wanted to see. If, oh, Chris uh, was just uh, he he gave me a compliment one time, and I still remember it. And I, it was just like uh, I, it was. I'm not even going to say what it was, but it was just he's another one. When you're acting with him, brother, you know. You better have your, you better have your ducks in order. You better know your stuff. And, and because of, you know, Elliot Stabler, that's who he is. Do you know what I mean? Uh, as an artist, he'll roll over you. Do you know what I mean? In the scene as, as a, as a guy, he'll do it, you know, cause he's got that juice, but that's what made our, uh, antagonist. We, because it seemed real that, you know, two cops really button heads. Yeah. So, and the writing was always fun, you know? To really mix it up, uh, I bought it. It's sometimes you're you're doing these roles where you're like, eh, you know. Um, but uh, but he and I, we always had this really. It was either subtle or it was outright antagonism, you know, or it was, and that's fun. 
if you're an actor, that's fun. You mentioned your first episode, and this was what's so wild. So your first episode is Counterfeit with Michael O'Keefe. And your last episode is with, uh, well, not your last, but the ones we're talking about that we watched for this one yeah. are also with Michael O'Keefe, and he's your cousin, Eugene. And I just couldn't believe it's your first episode. And then with, you know, season 17, you guys reunite. Or was this 18? What is this? We were up to the O's again, I guess. Yeah. 17, yeah. yeah. Well, he told us, we had, he was one of our first guests on yeah. the podcast. And he told us that the, that he was like the reason they had something called like the O'Keefe rule, which is like you can't come back within six months or something. Because they at the beginning, they had him coming back so often. It was like people were probably getting confused or something. Yeah. I think on the mothership, I was a FBI agent. I was a, a colonel in Iraq. And I was something else. Oh, I was a contractor who blew up a building. Um, <laughs> the O'Keefe rule. That sounds about right. One time, oh, Michael... He was terrific. We have that screaming match in the church. Yeah. And then I exit the church and I'm really steaming. You know what I mean? But we shot, I specifically remember it. I was so anxious. We shot the exterior first. So I'm coming out of the church like, he's on. And I have no idea what we're going to do in the church. Right. How so angry I to, am I going to you know, be? <laughs> the, the barometer and, 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 I said to Mariska, I was like, am I screaming too much? Am I, am I like being an idiot? She's like, no, I think it'll work. <laughs> I was like, I hope it will. <laughs> and then I got in there with Michael and he was, he was just, you know, I've known Bronx priests. He's more Bronx priest than any. I mean, he was just so good. His dialect his the way he gave it back to me. Eddie, you are, you know, just yeah. uh, paranoid. And, and I thought this is really mixing it up, you know, and I love that as an actor. I love when I get to do that. I don't like sedate, like, you know, um, subtlety. <laughs> I like to really just let yeah. it, you know, let it rip. And Michael was just so much fun. He was just, you know, when you have Mariska Hargitay grabbing you and pushing you back, I'll go, wait a minute, <laughs> like this, you know, like, um, uh, you know, we had fun that day. It was a lot. It, I was exhausted, um, from yelling. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. But, um, but Michael was the best. He was just so much fun to work with. Also, the later Tucker years, I'd like to say, a really good hat game. There were beanies. There were a little paper boy hat. You know, okay. <laughs> no, no hat question. <laughs> there were a lot so of So my last hat, my father was from Ireland. My mother was from Ireland. We call those hats cabines. That means small hat, you know. And, um, and so my father used to wear it like kind of like sideways. He was a longshoreman. That helped. Um, but uh, so they said, we want to give you a hat. I'm like, oh. Really? And, they, and I, I said, yeah. And I came out to her. And this is vintage Mariska Hargitay. I come out with the hat and she goes, very newsy. Newsy. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, God, now I have to do it. And it's only forever. So, I mean, you know, you, you shouldn't really, you know, stress about well, it. Well, of outfits and stuff, Robocop, through, I mean, going backwards, was that a tough outfit to shoot yes. in? <laughs> yes. Yes. <Okay. laughs> I used to call it humping the can, you know, humping the garbage can. Um, <laughs> that was the third film I had ever done. And I remember, oh, like eight or nine or 10 months. And my agent would call and he'd say, Robocop reared its head again. And I'd say, oh, uh, I said, I don't want to do that. I had just done like two or three, you know, independent films that were kind of like, you know, classy and, you know, arty. And I was like, what? Why am I the only guy who can play a monosyllabic cyborg? I mean, that can't be possible. This is this is show business. There must be look. There's a hundred people out there who could. Yeah. You know. So anyway, um, 
so then one day they make you an offer and it's like, okay. <laughs> like this, <laughs> like, so you do it. And, um, however, I learned a lot about filmmaking and, you know, I, cause I had, like I said, done a couple of indies. I remember being in my trailer and I, I'd like look out the window, like, oh my God, there's like 8,000 people here. And, um, you know, it built professional muscles. So you put a costume on that's 90 pounds. You show up, you're colder than everyone. You're hotter than everyone. You're, you're in pain. I mean, you know, but again, like professional muscles showing up on early, not on time, early, uh, doing your job, being grateful for your job, treating everybody as respectfully as possible and, and going home and repeating, you know, and pinching yourself that you're getting paid to do this. It's just, yeah, it's really shocking in the industry when. Yeah how many dicks are around? You're like, what are you so mad at? I'm naive, I, I, I'm naive or something because when I see that, I, I, I'm like, what am I? I'm fascinated by it. I'm like, oh my God, look at this person. This yeah. is terrible. Yeah. <laughs> it's fascinating yeah. to me. And then I'll usually have a talk. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and I get along with everybody. I mean, I, I, I seriously, um, be interested if somebody had a problem with me over the years. You know, I know I've had problems with, with one or two people, but, uh, you know, uh, again, I'm in this whole zone of, uh, gratitude and, you know, it, it, it's an ensemble. It's a, it's a, you can't do it by yourself. You need everybody, you know, sure. The lighting guy's taking a long time or this or that, you know, but that's the, that's the nature of, of what we do. And it's great when it works well. Yeah. My mom used to say things like, in her Irish accent, is it going to be a good film? And I'd say, I'd say, mom, we make the good ones the same way we make the bad ones. Yeah. You know, we show up, everybody pats themselves. Hey, it's great. It's great. It's great. Until you see it and you're like, oh my God, it's awful. Um, or it's good. So you do, and it, there's an earnestness. You are always trying to make a good film or a good television show. Uh, but somehow, sometimes that's not the way it turns out. So. You're so great. Are people yelling at you on the streets? Like, do people kind of... Do you know the gals who, who write the tickets, the Department of Traffic people, uh -huh. like in New York, they're like, yo, leave my girl alone. Like, you know, with, with, with Olivia, and I'm telling you, fiercely protective of her. Um, I've pulled up two lights at New York City with a, a, like a cop squad car next to me and the cops look over at me and they're like, <laughs> and then they just drive away. They're like, I know this guy. I know, <laughs> I know that I don't want to know him. So I'm just going to move. So um, it's fun. It, it keeps it interesting. You do lots of different things. I read a review once. It's like, Burke's career bounces around more than a pinball machine. You know, and I'm like, whatever. Um, I play l l lots of cops. Somebody said, are you afraid that you're typecast? Yeah. And I'm like, just Leave out the word type, okay? Yeah. I'm, ca I'm, ca I'm cast, okay? I don't have a problem with that. Yeah, so, um, I'm cast. <laughs> people don't get it. Because sometimes people are like, that guy always acts like about, I'm thinking of someone, but like, oh, he's always yeah. the same person in every role. And I'm like, I would love that. I um, I think I would Oh, you know, listen. It's, <laughs> people try to insult yeah, you, just, you in ways where you're like, you don't even get what how hard it is to even get in anything. I tell the story. I was in Costco. You guys know what Costco is. Yes. I'm going to make it quick. There's this little old woman and she's in front of me and she yeah, looks yeah, at me yeah. and she goes, you look like that actor. And I was like, I do. And, and she said, yes. And I said, excuse me, miss. And my wife said, leave her alone, please. I said, miss, 
what actor? She said, oh, he's an actor. He, you know, he does different things. <laughs> and I tapped her and I said, like what? Like he does, she goes, oh, he does television and movies and you look like him. And I said, I look like him. She said, yes. And I said, and I tapped her again and, and she, she said, what? My wife's like, stop. And I said, <laughs> I, I said, miss, can I ask you a question? She goes, what? I said, is he any good? She goes, what do you mean? I said, is he a good actor? And she goes, he's okay. <laughs> like this. And I was like, boom, yeah. So my wife, I was like, ah. <laughs> she's like oh you had to push it you had to push yeah, it yeah your wife like, was like i told and then, you and the woman looks at me she goes it's you isn't it and i said yeah yeah it is um but i'll never forget that I, I, you know i'm i'm making it more funny but it, it happened so you know quietly <laughs> and she goes he's he's okay and i always remember that like when i think i'm doing really well in a, in a role or something i'm like it's okay yeah, then remember the Costco lady. That'll keep your ego in check. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. God sent her. <laughs> it's funny. You should really be proud of yourself because when you look at like the business today and there now there's all this talk about Nepo babies, it's like a lot of people do come from somebody who does that, you know? Yeah. And so you for you to come from nobody who does that, no connections, nobody. it's impressive. <laughs> it is impressive. And, well, and you stayed in New York, right? Did you ever come to L.A.? No. He's good. I, the first two months of my career I went to L.A. I was in L.A. this summer for the first time in 16 years. Uh, wow. I, I have nothing against L.A. My mom was elderly and my dad had passed away. And I always told her that I would take care of her. Oof. And I did. So I took care of my mom for like 17 years. She was handicapped. She was partially blind. And so I told her, I'm not going to LA. And then sometimes she'd say to me, oh, you should go take that job. Because I, I remember one year I went to Africa, came home, went to Thailand, came home, went back to Africa, came home, went to Thailand, and went back to Africa. I mean, that's... What? And, and it was just one of those years where I was just I was like, is there anything remotely like on this continent, for God's sake? <laughs> but, uh, but I always told my mom, don't worry. I'll, and for 17 years, I think it was in a row, I like worked in New York. I did Rescue Me, Special Victims Unit, Law and Order, uh, Person of Interest, uh, Gossip Girl. Uh, I was just like, I was, and actually for many years, I was doing all of those shows at once, you know, and everybody played nice in terms of production and producers, you know, well, if he breaks his leg, getting into the car, leaving our set and blah, blah, it's like, stop, stop. <laughs> I'm a grown up. I'm an adult. So I always took care of my mom, took it every um, doctor's appointment and she was my best buddy. But it didn't hurt you at all. Like in no. a way it was a blessing because you've done all these iconic New York shows. Like yeah. your resume is like everything that's shot in New York in the last like 20 years, you know? I used 30. to think if, if you can't get a job in New York, there's something going on. Um, listen, <laughs> I've been so lucky. Lucky, lucky, lucky. I have a modicum of talent. Uh, <laughs> so says the Costco lady. <laughs> a little bit. Um, so when you couple that with the odds of making it and, and feeding your family and making insurance and paying union dues and paying mortgages and, mm. car, you know, it's really some task to pursue this life. And I think it's harder now because they don't pay actors or directors or writers. You know, think everything has gone very corporate. And um, if you don't like it, Mr. Burke, there's a thousand guys behind you who will take it. Yeah. Um, so I guess in a business sense, in a capitalist sense, that's their right. Uh, but at the same time, I don't have to like it. Um, however, uh, I have been 
inordinately lucky. And, uh, but I'm cognizant of that at all times, at all times, it seems, because uh, it's one big, I can't believe, like, even my sisters will look at me, she's like, I can't believe you got to do, you know, I'm like, <laughs> can you believe I can't, you know, so, so, um, because that wasn't supposed to happen. And there was a, another factor. I was like kind of the dark sheep of the family there for a while, um, you know, struggling with different stuff and uh, different issues and overcoming them, you know, a day at a time. And, uh, um, but again, you have to do the work. You have to take the action. Don't tell me you're grateful. Show me in your actions. Right. And, and, um, and so I try to do that, uh, you know, each day. Wow. Thank you so I'm giving, much. I'm, I'm divulging way too much. This God, is like, no, this you've is got a great that. philosophy. You don't take what you have for granted. It's like really impressive. We can't keep you on here all day, even though I could talk to you for three more hours. Do you have any um like last minute like SVU tidbits that maybe you thought we would, our listeners would like? Like you and Ice-T ever have a funny moment? I don't know, something. I'll, I'll tell you something that I never told anybody. But it's, it doesn't really have to do with me. So my son put his resume in to be a production assistant and he never heard from them. He was, he was working on different shows. He was working on lots of different shows, but I never helped him. So one time I took his resume and I dropped it in the box in the office. <laughs> so anyway, about three weeks later, he's like, dad, I got a call. I got a call. They called me. And I'm like, <laughs> I said, so you go, but you don't know me. And he's like, okay, okay. So I, I would go there and he's like, you know, looking at me on the set and everything. And, and so he was doing fine and, and, and they moved him up and he's, he's getting a little promotion and they moved him up again and he's getting a little promotion. And so finally he's in charge of first team. That's like knocking on Marishka's door and Kelly's door and Peter's and Scanavino without knowing he was my kid. Scanavino was so nice to my kid. I swear to you. So anyway, one day he says, they're moving me up to first team. And I'm like, no, no, don't blow it. Don't blow it. So finally, <laughs> um, he has a problem with this other PA. And he calls me, he goes, hey, what's with so-and-so? And I said, oh, so-and-so's kind of a problem child. And he's like, I don't know what's going on there, really. He goes, yeah, daddy's like giving me shit. And I was like, yeah, no, just let it go. So the crew member says to me, he goes, this same guy who's giving a hard time, he goes, there's an actor on the show named Robert Burke. Are you any relation to him? And my son goes, yeah, he's my father. <laughs> so this production kid puts it out over the, the tall kid, the tall, the, the quiet one. The quiet, that's Burke's kid. That's Burke's kid. So anyway, Marishka hears this. She's like, what? What? So she says to Liam, come over here like this. And she's like, you're Bobby's son. And he's like, oh, uh, yeah. She's like, You've been here for three months. Nobody ever said this. Like, <laughs> I know you told me that. So the cat was out of the bag. They, they, she called me twice, but I wasn't around. And then they sent me this selfie, of course, that they took. <laughs> and I was like, oh no, you know. So I, I was always so uh, like, don't blow it, don't blow it, don't blow it. But um, Scanavino, oh my God, he said something so I can't even tell. You. But uh, yeah, they were super nice to him and he had just such a great experience there. And I was proud of him that he was there for like three months before they knew he was my kid. Um, yeah, so that was, that's a little tidbit that I never told anybody. Well, I'm also sure that other PA really changed his attitude quickly. <laughs> yeah, there was something going on there. I'll tell you, this guy, and I won't tell you his name, but he knocks on my door one day and he's smoking a cigarette. He goes, yeah, they're ready for you. And I'm like, okay, first of all, 
put the cigarette out. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, I don't have a problem with that, but somebody else might. So I'm just, you know, trying well, to prolong your life here. You don't. You know, yeah. Like, if you do, go down the block or something like that. Anyway, it was really frowned upon. And I was like, just let me give you a little tip here, uh, Sonny. So, um, I yeah. love that he was like, I'm not using my connections until I have to like defeat an enemy. That is he so couldn't, funny. He, could, <laughs> he couldn't stand that anymore. I was like, how did they figure it out? He goes, I just told the guy to fucking back off. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but I, I thought that was really funny. That is great. That's a great story. So I'm just trying to like, Astromize, like how much of this podcast I'm going to regret. None, <laughs> no. <laughs> that was amazing. I feel as though we are connected deeply. Uh, he is my friend. <laughs> we have been following each other on Instagram since this interview, and I do keep up with everything that he's doing. He's actually, I should mention as well, I think he's in that Boston Strangler show with Kira Knightley. If anyone thinks we're not going to his house in Fire Island, you're an idiot. <laughs> um, we're going to Fire Island. We're hanging out with him. And I'm going to get in the back of that fire truck and we're going to put out some fires all over Hell that town. Yeah. Hell yeah. He's going to put out my fire for sure. Yeah. We're um. going to eat some bangers and mash. <laughs> we're going to, you know, play a fiddle and have a Guinness. Listen. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be I, great. I like him. He seems cool because he seems like one of these guys that's like... um, He's pro-firefighter, he's pro-cop, but he's also like got liberal, I feel like. He's got good, he's got good, uh, good energy. Um, yeah, I, you can't I be, like him. you can't be, you know, you can't be an anti-gay on the island. <laughs> no, of course. You um, can't. No. What did we learn? What's our post-mortem from this episode? This again, the Catholic we church. don't like the Catholics, <laughs> except for Casey's family. Yes. Oh, also, we'd like to just do a quick apology to the parents of our dear producer, Casey O'Brien. This goes out straight to Kevin and Sandra O'Brien for saying that they should be put in jail for raising Casey Catholic and allowing him to be an altar boy. We retract that statement, and we do think you've done a great job raising um, our producer, Casey. And uh, I don't know, like, I feel like We've done a bunch of episodes lately like this where it's like not even the Catholic Church, just all this corruption of like layers and layers of it goes all the way up to the top. It goes up to judges and DAs and lawyers. And it's just like, it's just really disappointing to think about these people that move their way up in a system that's supposed to help people or they take oaths to help people. And it's like, they're just all just want to get, they all just want to fuck in the end. <laughs> we got to stop thinking of these people as exceptions to the rule and start remembering that it is the rule. Powerful people are committing these crimes. That's the point. Like Absolute power corrupts absolutely. It's just wild. It's always like, oh, I can't believe it. I know. It's like, no. I know. That is who does it. That's who like, gets do away with still it. Get, do people still get surprised when like a priest gets busted? Are they like, not yes. Father Cunningham? No. It's like, yeah, it's like all these guys. Even watching the Jared from Subway thing again, it was just like, we couldn't believe such a wholesome guy. It's like, what? The guy who sells sandwiches? Like it's But who told you he was wholesome too? It's like, it's like the image that was built for him because he was selling you sandwiches. Yeah. Like he's still a guy. It's um, just, you know, aren't we just we put these things on people and it's like, no, everyone is just a guy. Like everyone is just a person. Being a teacher or in the army. Or a doctor doesn't make you 
any different than if you're a bus driver or a janitor or, I don't know, an arts and crafts leader. It doesn't yeah. matter. Yeah. If you work at the Sip and Snack, it doesn't matter. <laughs> you're like, okay. The, the, the Sip and Snack, by the way, is a very bougie bodega, you could say, in our neighborhood. Like, not even. It's like everything is made out of cacao. Like, nothing is real chocolate. Like, it's the most... I go in there and I'm like, I don't even think I can have anything in here. It's like too fancy. Um, But Wait, did you ever... I forgot this YouTube. This was like back in the day. I was still living in Chicago, but you know those like sour candy strips? They're like blue and rainbow in the middle. Yeah, 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 yeah. So this, they, they used to make like extreme recipes and eat them and they used to call those gay bacon strips. (laughs) (laughs) who did oh on youtube yeah i don't remember just case they would be like gay bacon strips gay bacon strips (laughs) (laughs) they would make like extreme recipes of like layered wild things yeah and they would use those a lot because i think we can all agree regular bacon is extremely cishet right like, regular bacon is very hetero, very cis. Like, gay bacon is a specific thing. Gay bacon strips. Um, I wonder, is sausage gay and bacon is cis? <laughs> <laughs> I don't this know. is another podcast idea. We just <laughs> assign foods different identities. <laughs> yeah, corn, corn beef hash, straight. Sausage and gravy, bye. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I just like the amount of diarrhea all those foods give. It's just like not gay. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Now I want fucking bacon. You're back on bacon after that pig video, huh? Oh, I only didn't eat bacon. I didn't eat It went for pork. a bit. You eight did months. it for a bit. I didn't eight eat months? pork for eight months. Yeah. That's a while. Yeah, I didn't eat pork for eight months. And then you know what broke me? It was those little buns. Those like buns with like pork belly and I just Oh like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. a joy. Yeah. Like I yeah. just wanted a bun. And then no bacon I've been into for like a month or two. Cause mm. usually I'm not that bacon ravenous, but lately I've really been wanting bacon. I do miss bacon from my meat eating days, but I try to satiate myself with fake bacon, even though it's not as good. Um, no, don't but, you feel like you're just like a dog eating a draw a, those <laughs> those fake <laughs> dog treats? I guess that's my life. Fake vegetarian bacon looks like a dog treat. Well, it's because they make it like well, at least some of it. The kind I get at this one restaurant, like they make it with like the white stripes in it, like bacon fat, and I'm like, this is weird. Why are you making it look like real bacon? Like I don't know, just make it brown. I don't know. Well, yeah, um, my Adam Burke used to have a joke about like how it's embarrassing when you know it's not a real egg in fast food, but they like put the yellow in the middle. And yeah, say, yeah. Stop <laughs> doing this. <gasps> oh, we know even, it's not real egg. I forgot about that. I've been duped. I was today when I found out that that's not real. Um, all right. Let's, I I think this has been a, a definitely a long, a, a jump, one of our jumbo episodes. So let's move on to our, what would Sister Peg do? This is our weekly segment where we direct you towards an organization, a blog post, an article, something to help you get more info about the subject we touched on in today's episode. And this week we've already cut, we've already pointed you guys to this uh, organization, but it's just kind of the most appropriate. And I think they do great work. So we're going to once again, point you to the survivors network of, of those abused by priests, which is, uh, has an acronym Did you of just snap. Say those of you's? 
those abused by priests. I apologize. Okay. I just thought you got really <laughs> Boston for a second for the priest part. The Survivors Network for those abused, abused by priests. Okay, this is serious though. This is the Survivors Network of those abused by priests and their acronym is SNAP. And SNAP is the largest, oldest, and most active support group for women and men wounded by religious and institutional authorities. They offer several resources like support groups across the country and how and how to provide testimony to active abuse investigations. So for more information, go to snapnetwork.org. And that, as always, will be... Um, in our stories on the day the episode is released and then saved forever in a highlight on our Instagram page, WWSPD and WWSPD2. Thank you so much for that. It is so fucked up. Um, Next week, we will be doing Haystack and that's season eight, episode 15. Get on board with some Peacock, some Hulu, anywhere internationally. Get your friends we'd like to visit you know, a rate review. Thanks for listening. We really love doing this podcast and all of you. Thanks, guys. See you next week. That's Messed Up is an Exactly Right production. If you have compliments you'd like to give us or episodes you'd like us to cover, shoot us an email at thatsmesseduppod at gmail.com. Follow the podcast on Instagram at That's Messed Up Pod and on Twitter at Messed Up Pod. And follow us personally at Kara Clank and at Glitter Cheese. As always, please see our show notes for sources and more information. Thank you so much to our producer, Casey O'Brien. And to our mixer, John Bradley, and our guest booker, Patrick Kotner. And to Henry Kapersky for our theme song and Carly Jean Andrews for our artwork. Thank you to our executive producers, Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, Danielle Kramer, and everybody at Exactly Right Media. Dun, dun! dun. <laughs> Follow That's Messed Up and SVU Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show. Visit exactlyrightstore.com to purchase That's Messed Up merch.